Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. Welcome, Martin Deck. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. This is going to be fun, I think. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Before I get into your background, um, I know you're Martin, but you also go by Zonk. I wonder. Yes, uh, Zonk is my uh, long, long, long standing nickname. And uh, I did try to be Zonk Deck on Facebook, but somebody outed me and I had to change. (laughs) You went back to Martin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we get into it, um, I just want to say something quickly about a future podcast. You're also a big Tintin fanatic, right? Oh, my. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you're talking to a dyed-in-the-wool, going back to before I could barely remember anything. I'm a Tintin fanatic. So it occurred to me as I was preparing for this that maybe if we do another one, maybe we could do it about Tintin and Hergé and all that. I don't know if that would be interesting to you. That could be interesting to me. You may know more about it than me, but I definitely I have a very soft spot for him, and he's my... He's my Facebook avatar and always has been and always will be. I uh, actually met a guy through Facebook. I've never met him in real life. A uh, dude from uh, England who is uh, as big a Tintin fan. And okay. uh, that might be something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's sort of park that over in the things to do. Uh, For sure. Okay. Um, before the objective of this podcast is to talk about um, late 20th century, mostly British and Jamaican music forms, although some of them we're also going to touch on other types of popular musics. Um, but before we get into that, why, why don't you just tell listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into that? Okay, well, I mean, uh, it's funny, I, I do, I will say just about, you know, job and what do I do and all that stuff. For, uh, for a little over 30 years, from about 87 till about 2018, I worked in the book business selling books at uh, bookstores, uh, both independent and university owned. Um, And for the last four years, I've been working in the university library as a library assistant. Okay, so this is uh, all in Windsor, Ontario. All in Windsor, Ontario. My whole life has been spent here, um, for sure. And I went to school at Windsor, but before, before going to school, I became a gigantic fan of reggae music at the age of 15 when I saw Bob Marley uh, live in Detroit at the Masonic uh, Theater. And it was just a fantastic uh, show. I'd been to concerts before, um, but nothing as exciting as that. And uh, the music just really spoke to me. And I um, first got uh, all of Bob Marley's records and I picked up a bunch of um, uh, reggae compilations and I've found out about a few other artists especially Lee Perry I was very glad to find out about Lee Perry um, and uh, I so, so Bob the- Marley so so going to Detroit at the age young age of 15 across the river I guess it's a big city just sort yep. of put people in the this is what like seven, right oh yeah well right? Windsor Detroit is a huge it's a huge thing I mean we're here in Windsor small town of about 200,000 people has been forever um, and there's this monster on the other side of the river. Right, 
huge city, right? That's a gigantic city across the river. City that's incredible, yeah. right there, right? So yeah, and so always been able to go see concerts, uh, way way bigger than Windsor's uh, Windsor <laughs> should be able to uh, support. So I mean, that's a big part of my my life, and always has okay. been. Interesting. It, it occurs to me that I mean, if you're living in Windsor, you have access probably to a better music scene than just about anybody in Canada in many respects. I would. You know, I, I mean, that, that sounds, that I would sounds think so, yeah. strange yeah. to say just because of what Detroit has this incredible history of Motown and hard rock, you know, all this stuff we're going to get into later. But and if, if you're in Montreal or Toronto, there's cool scenes. And I mean, look, I'm a proud Montrealer and I have connections to Toronto as well. But do you think that's an accurate statement that that would be the if, if you're into sort of you really into music is is Windsor the best place in the country because of that access or is that you know what i'm gonna say yes because i have to uh because that is what i what i've lived and what i believe and what i always believed but um i've found out a lot more in recent years about the music scenes both uh both um reggae and punk and post-punk and all that stuff of uh of a few other canadian cities and i have to admit they they made some good music hamilton even winnipeg <laughs> I grudgingly admitted here yeah and even toronto even, even toronto forsaken city interesting yeah um it's interesting because uh we're gonna have just a a few a little plug for a future podcast i'm gonna have a guy called chris berry on the podcast who was a singer for the 222s who uh which had the first recorded punk single in the province of quebec at some point in oh the cool place. yeah um, so there were, you know, Montreal has, I mean, you know, I'm bragging for my own city here, has, has had a very interesting music scene of various kinds, a very interesting new wave scene in the 80s, you know, with men without hats and stuff. Yep. Too. Connections yep. to Europe, which is a little bit for different sure. from other parts of the country. As and, well. and also uh, disco and uh, reggae, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I've, uh, I got to put in a plug here for my, my friend Mike Panotin has a, has a website slash blog called Kanakistan Music, and it's really, uh, really worth checking out. He okay. has um, turned me on to a bunch of Canadian music that otherwise I would have maybe never paid attention <laughs> to. The most recently, um, uh, Simply Saucer from Hamilton, fantastic band from the 70s, way ahead of its time. Wow. And, uh, and a band out of Winnipeg called Dub Rifles that uh, I remember hearing them a long time ago, I think uh, from the radio station here that I used to be involved with. And um, uh, just thinking, you know, it's pretty good music, but it's not dub. And right, so right. Kind of shelving it aside and that, you know, I am pretty focused on dub and reggae uh, and have been for a long, long time, but I like to keep my, my ears open for good stuff of all genres. And especially because I also sometimes DJ uh, dance parties. You got to just be ready. For you got to be open, right? Anything other, with a beat. Yeah. 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 You, you want to get people dancing. So a lot of dub and reggae can do that, obviously, but there's other stuff that will. Yeah. And, it, we'll and I don't, I have to admit that I don't uh, overdo it with the dub and reggae when I'm DJing. It's <laughs> my number one concern is to keep that dance floor full. And uh, I don't want to. That's I'm not good. out there to educate people, you know. Yeah. What I'm <laughs> that is just the cardinal sin of any musician or entertainer is, you know, if you're preaching to the audience, you're probably not doing it right. Yeah. That's pretty <laughs> yeah you wanted to, they want to be, if you're a comedian, you, they should be laughing. Or if you're a musician, they should be 
get feeling the groove or whatever. Yeah. If it's a church and you're going to give a sermon, that's a different thing. Right? <laughs> but that's not what, you know. Um, Only in my dreams, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that's, of course, where the blues started, right? Just a wink to the blues brothers, right? Um, oh, for sure. Brown, right? Okay. Um, so interesting. So that's, uh, so, so that's, we'll, we'll put that to the side. It's another discussion maybe about the, the best music scene in Canada. That's an interesting question that is coming on at the beginning, but we'll, we'll leave it uh, to the side for the moment. I wanted to get into the background and I wanted to start with punk. Um, for me, and I, I figured this was the same for you, but um, from what you just told me, it might not be. For me, as a Generation X, I was born in 1972. Right. I was growing up, you know, my parents were early boomers. You know, they were born in the 40s. And so they were uh -huh. huge Beatles fans. And so I grew up listening to a lot of Beatles. And, you know, my father was a musician. So I heard a lot of other kinds of music and stuff like that as well. But it was a lot of 60s rock, you know, a lot of Rod Stewart and kind of really great stuff. I mean, really good music. And that was, it was sort of like, all powerful the boomers had this kind of monopoly on the popular music somehow and then punk came along and for the first time when i was an early teenager i felt like this feels like i feel like this is different from my parents like i feel uh -huh. like when i'm listening to the clash or the sex pistols and a lot of other groups i was into back then um i feel like this is a demarcation point from me from my parents and i wonder is that in any way did you have an experience like that was punk or well, i mean i'm i'm uh, 10 years older than you so that's part of it part of the difference but the other the other thing is my parents considerably older um right. so i like my dad i think he kind of i think he kind of uh gave up on popular music after uh, the end of the big band era <laughs> glenn my, miller yeah. My, my mom introduced us to a lot of great uh, um, folk music, uh, pop folk, um, but Harry Belafonte, I'd say, was a huge oh, thing that we listened to in my house and it had a, big had a big influence on me. And that was actually how I was first introduced to Jamaican music. But um, my, I had a bunch of older brothers and sisters, too. Um, and so they introduced me to all that music of the 60s. And okay. of course, then a, a, a transistor radio, well, I got when I was about 10, and that put me right into the, you know, 100% pop music all the time. Right. Uh, for me, uh, punk quickly, rock was definitely yeah, a, so I was just, yeah. was so definitely what about a way of uh, yeah, sorry, turning yeah. off all of that, all of the pop that I had been exposed to, let's say, for the previous <laughs> five years or whatever, 1976, 77, sometime around there. I actually would, I have to admit that I turned into a punk when I read the lyrics to Anarchy in the UK in the local paper. Just a couple lines, probably. Uh, you know, I, I was like, that's it for me. This is what I, this is what I want. I had a friend uh, who went to uh, England for a while. I think he was, I think he was there for a year almost with his dad, who was a prof who was on, uh, I don't know if it was sabbatical or if he was over there actually teaching, but um, yeah, so he came back with a bunch of records and we were totally into it. And I have to admit that even though I grew up in Windsor here in the shadow of Detroit, I was not all that familiar with uh, the Stooges and the MC5 and all that fantastic music. And it was, there was the uh, British stuff that really turned me on to punk. And also it really helped with the reggae actually too, because, you know, the Clash were, they were all totally into reggae. Johnny Rotten, bigger than anybody else actually. Really? Really, I oh, didn't yeah. know the Sex Pistols oh, yeah. were as well. Yeah, that's well, I mean, to me. I, I'm, 
he wasn't trying to make any, and but I would say in in Public Image Limited, he definitely uh, ventured into dub, and you you can see the influence of. Uh, yeah, that's true. Actually, now that you're mentioning yeah. it, some of the PIL yeah. stuff. Is, yeah, undo indubitably, and then it, I mean with uh, with PIL, the bass player Ja Wobble, uh, the the uh, influence is obvious just in the name, but he also he also made a lot of like straightforward reggae over the years. Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is so it's really kind of, interesting. Yeah. It's uh, weird. The the uh, the traction of reggae seems to be almost like uh, the, what do the uh, post structuralists call it? Over determined. Like there's just so many things feeding into it. Right. That, uh, right. That I, yeah. I think I was destined to be a reggae fan, but uh, yeah, punk, yeah. Punk that's... was big. Punk was yeah, very just, big for sorry, me. I, I just want to interject quickly here just to speak on, on, on a couple of things you said because it's really interesting. So for you, it was the punk music was um was the British punk that, that you that, that is it that what I really got into, yeah. Yeah. I, that seemed to be a thing in the 70s and 80s in Canada. A lot of young kids we were into like the I was huge into the clash, and I know you were as well. Yeah. Um, so, so, the, and the, the, I wanted to just mention a little bit about, just talk a little bit about the origins of punk, because later on, like, as you mentioned, you mentioned the Stooges and later yeah. on in my twenties, I got into, Iggy, I got into Iggy pop in my late teens with the brick by brick record. That was the first one I got and oh, yeah. really into him and got into all the lust for life. And I just like, totally, I still think Iggy pop is one of the best and then into the Stooges. And then in my twenties, I, I started listening to the New York dolls. Right. Just I still to this day think are just one of the most amazing groups. They're, yeah, I'm I'm remembering some yeah. of our uh, some of our chats over the years. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, it's it's interesting to be. Well, I I just didn't know um, all that much about none of us did the dolls. None the of students. us did. They weren't known. Right. Uh, it's funny. Uh, there's definitely people here in Windsor who were totally into them. Um, really? Guys, really? Just a little bit older wow. than me. Okay. But, um, interesting. Yeah, but guys, a couple of three years older than me who were like total okay. uh, dolls heads. Wow. Um, interesting. And, uh, you know, the, when the Clash played here in uh, Detroit uh, in 1979, um, David Johansson opened for them. And oh I went, my god! I, I didn't even know who David Johansson <laughs> was, or, or if I did, I didn't care. It's like, oh, who cares about the dolls? Like they're, they're over with. I don't know if you know the Sex Pistols song about the dolls called new york um it's I, on never mind the bollocks it's it's outrageous it's a, it's a fun song though and it, but it's outrageous it's full of you know what all kinds of anti-dolls it homophobic <laughs> by today's standards even um but uh they're um they're just getting off on on dissing the dolls because sort of kind of uh the eatable thing really i suppose it's like you guys are over with we're here now so but so also, so can I just ask you quickly about that? Because I, I want to just linger a little bit on, on the, the New York Dolls and the Sex Pistols. I understood from the, the sort of the reading I've done, you know, so I, I sort of got into the Dolls later on and then and I was into the, the Sex Pistols earlier. But it when I really look at what I sort of think punk music is, it seems like the New York Dolls were the first sort of kind of screw you to the establishment, just dressing up in drag and doing this really hard sounding rock and just being completely a kind of it seems like that's the beginning of it but and and i think that you may you can probably confirm this but i've heard that malcolm uh mclaren 
is the guy's name. Yeah. That he went to New York. This I, I learned this in a, a course that I took online about rock and roll music. And he saw them at CBGB's and he was like, wow, these guys are just perfect. We need to bring them to England. And so he went back to England and he was trying to bring them over. And the dolls, you know, Johnny Thunder's a junkie and they're just crazy. And they broke up in the interim. So then he went and formed the Sex Pistols. Is that a true yep. account? Yep, I think so. I, he might yeah. have, he might have even uh he might have even signed on as manager or something like that. That's what I always heard. But I don't like again, because at the time I didn't care about the dolls. It's like whatever. But I think <laughs> the other thing about the sex pistols. Uh, the dolls for fucking them up because he, he definitely did rely on them to he did want them to um you know to to work for him basically and they didn't right. uh, but he did I'm pretty sure also then that Mal Malcolm McLaren was the guy who brought Johnny Thunders to England because <coughs> he toured with with the Clash and the Pistols on the Anarchy tour I'm pretty sure and he also is is uh, reputedly introduced heroin to uh, to the punk scene in Britain, but uh, wow. I think there's a lot of other ways that heroin might have entered punk scene in England, including um, uh, Sid Vicious's own mom. Mike, I understand was a was a junkie. Really? So, wow. I don't think he waited for Johnny Thunders. Anyway, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So 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 there was an eventual connection there. I, I didn't know that Thunders had actually. Um, I mean, I knew that he had gone to England, but the thing about him introducing heroin to that's yeah. A bit of a urban legend to me. I mean, heroin's been in Europe for yeah. It's it's pretty urban so, legend there. Yeah. Maybe maybe too punk in in particular. I don't know, but uh, one of the best books I've read in a long time is um, Vivian Albertine's book uh, uh, called Closed Music Boys, mm -hmm. something like that. It might be called Closed 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 Music 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 Boys Boys Boys. And uh, she talks about Johnny Thunders uh, coming in and the influence that he had. Um, she, Musically or just, or the dope, or I'm just curious, like what? what Music and dope, yeah. Music and yeah. dope, yeah. Music okay. definitely, like he, uh, I think he supercharged the scene there in a way. It's he was weird a bit older, right? I mean, he, by that point, he was in yeah. about 30 or something, I guess. Yeah, something like that. He would have been older. And yeah. the, the weird thing about, like, I'm not sure if it was the dolls who were first or the Stooges. I, as a, you know, as a um, Windsorite, I have to root for the Stooges. <laughs> but, um, yeah. again, I, I didn't really know about the Stooges until uh, um, Sex Pistols uh, recorded No Fun. And then it turned out that my uh, my friend's sister had all the Stooges records, and then we totally got nice. into them. I, I, and maybe my I think my friend Marty probably was already into the Stooges at that time, but you know, there's only yeah, so much they, I can know. <laughs> the, the Stooges really have a real punk sensibility about. Them. Oh yeah, their their sound and and their whole and and it's interesting. Well, something else I wanted to mention to you too. Have you seen? I think it's a Hulu show called Pistol. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. I'm saving been, up. Right, yeah, okay. Danny Boyle is directs it, and everyone yeah. of my friends uh, here in Montreal, Christian Gravener was telling me, Oh, this is great, you gotta see it. So, I, I watched one episode, and it's kind of the whole scene Chrissy Hind, like a character yeah. playing her, is there working at sex and everything. The great yeah. artist for the pretenders, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, she, she was a music journalist in England at the time, if I remember correctly, for Cream. I'm trying to remember. And she was also a musician and turned into an incredible, amazing. I mean, I love her music as well. So she's in that. Yeah. But 
one of the things that comes through in that is they, they, they were, there's all the sort of stereotypical things about why punk came about. They all hated, uh, you know, the progressive rock that was really, you know, the Pink Floyd and uh-huh. Lake and Palmer that was all long, drawn out, boring solos and everything. So that's all sort of referenced. But also the influences, one of the main influences that they're all talking about is David Bowie. Right. Which is, the, and I wonder if that must be true. I'd never really made that connection. I love David Bowie too, but I mean, it, you know, is is that a thing that people who know about punk are really aware of? How Bowie? Oh yeah, I would say I would say so. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That um, you know, Bowie had a huge influence. I, even if you were not like, the, I think somebody re- referred to the Dolls look as uh, you know gutter glam. <laughs> Right, something like that. <laughs> That's right, right. So David if, Bowie in the you know, gutter. Right, yeah. Right, you, you think yeah. of you think of uh, glam rock as you know these incredible suits that oh, nobody could afford to even uh, own, much less wear. Um, but actually, you could you could get that effect with just a little bit of anything, right? And that's kind of the punk aesthetic. And I think for sure, um, um, the everybody who became a punk was into Bowie. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then Bowie had an effect on everybody. I mean, you know, Bowie befriended uh, the Stooges, right? Or Iggy in particular. That's and true. Saved yeah. No, saved him. And they also... worked together. Yeah. 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 Um, in Berlin later, that's a that's a whole that's right. sub-branch of yeah. music, I suppose, right? Was the David Bowie in Berlin days, I, I guess? Is that... Well, I, I mean, I think uh, Bowie produced uh, Lust for Life and uh, Idiot, I think. That could be that that maybe mixing things up. I remember up knowing, and they. I remember, I remember knowing that they were working together, and I. I have that recollection. I mean, that someone could fact check us on that, but that sounds right. That he no, for sure. And then, and yeah. also, you know, Iggy wrote uh, "China Girl" that Bowie ended up recording on, uh, on Let's Dance. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so Bowie, yeah, so Bowie has a def. He's a definite progenitor. Yeah, for sure. There's no question sure. that he's it's a progenitor of punk. And, and also what struck me about this was that's something I, I don't know that a lot of people really understand that connection. I think a lot of people know about the New York Dolls, but I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. No, and it's also funny. I mean, uh, I think I, I saw an interview with Johnny Rotten where he was kind of admitting that he didn't hate Pink Floyd, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> he just oh, wrote, funny. I hate on it. He, he was wearing a shirt that said, I hate Pink Floyd, but. He had bought the shirt as a Pink Floyd shirt, so. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I maybe he stole it. I don't know the full story. Um, wh- what I would say though is that um, you know, there's there's elements in Prague that I don't mind, but I certainly you know the uh, the whole overblownness of the arena rock in the '70s it was really out of control, yeah. and it still is. Yeah. It still is. Big big stage arena rock where it's, I think in those days it was much. You know, I will hesitate to use the word worse, but just more. I mean, you hear stories about Led Zeppelin doing these concerts that went on for like four hours. I mean, you know, <laughs> a show, you know, play for an hour and a half and yeah. going to go get drunk after. Right. You know, it, I don't know. It's kind of like it's kind of like I, 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 the more as I as I get older, the simpler I the simpler music I find better, like the Phil Spector maxim of never go beyond two point five minutes. You know, I saw. A song that's three, you know, a five minute odyssey. It's kind of like, no, just get the chords out there, get the thing going, and you're done. You know, like the Kinks do and the Who and the yeah. And the I, I'm a, I'm of both minds. I have to I have to admit that I'm of both minds, and sometimes uh, 
the, while this band that I'm really into um, from New Zealand, uh, Fat Freddy's Drop, I would say they're they're making the the kind of reggae that I want to hear now. Right. Um, it's, it's a mixture of of reggae and and funk and other influences, um, but uh, nice. they they can on record they're they're around six or seven minutes each but live they're more like 15 maybe 20 minutes and it's like, jams yeah. sounds like jams depending, like they're basically yeah, depending on yeah. the depending on the uh song and depending on the vibe depending on the audience it can be fantastic but um generally yeah, speaking yeah, I'm, no, I'm more of a of a short song guy and you know as a, even as a dj um this it's rare that something can hold uh, the, the attention. attention for more than about five yeah. or six minutes. So, yeah, that that seemed to be like if if we were going to define because we haven't actually defined punk music exactly. Uh -uh. We're trying to do that would probably be one of the things would be a shorter, more bang. You know, here it is, and now on to the next one. Kind yeah, of, right. Rather yeah. than right, which is uh, definitely sure for sure. Short the dolls, did that. the dolls didn't do long, drawn out. You know, uh, Odyssey with you know right our solo stuff they just played the tune and moved on to the next one whereas the stooges famously have one song that has goes on for i think 15 minutes it's it's basically just side filler on side b but uh, what's it called we will fall is that is that on funhouse uh yeah but they, they don't have any albums right the stooges only had a couple of two or three albums something like that right yeah two Two or three, yeah. two or three albums. I'm, I'm now, now I'm messed up. I'm not sure if it's on no problem. Or on but, but, but there is, but there is a uh, huge song that that is like you know a 15 minute. Yeah, it's just a it's right? just a dirge that goes on and on. And <laughs> I've had a lot of good times to that song. That's all. Nice. Okay, interesting. Okay, so so in other words, um, punk music is 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 in your face. It's and you and I got into the British stuff first. We both yeah. Did. And then we moved on, uh, you know, my, both of us got sort of retroactively moved backwards into, you know, the dolls and all that stuff, right? Which, yeah. And I think that may not be uncommon. I think there probably are, because the dolls, I, I'm surprised to hear you know someone who actually was into them when they were around, because it seems like they were, from what I've read, were they really known outside of New York City? I mean, I, I mean, they, they played Detroit, so they must have been a little bit known, but uh, but um Right. No, I it wasn't. Uh, I wouldn't say it was popular, but it was known. And and actually, my friend who <coughs> told me the story <coughs> quite recently about, um, I think he was uh, watching them on TV. So it was I like Don okay. Kirshner's rock concert or something like wow. that. Wow. So they and were big enough to get on to some to some kind of a TV show. They were known. Yeah. To, yeah. Okay. I, I so that would be that. like Midnight yeah. Special or uh, or Don Kirshner's rock concert. And his mom walked in the room and was and was just <laughs> offended and, a, yeah. and amazed at, at their appearance. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So this is in the seventies, right, where the morals yeah. were obviously quite different. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the Clash and why the Clash are sort of singular. I think for you and I both, at least, and I think for a lot of people. Um, I, I, I mean, I love the. I mean, I like the Sex Pistols. I like some of their songs, but they had one album and. All they really did was kind of spark the movement, it seems to me. I mean, they, you know, they had a couple of tours. They didn't really, um, you know, they didn't last in any way, unless you count, you know, the public image. I mean, the, the, that one album right. so astonishingly influential. I know that they yeah. themselves told me that that, not told me, but I, I heard them saying that, 
they, um, but that was what they saw them and they were like, wow, this is something. And they went and started learning how to play guitars. And they, and it was claimed that that happened all around in England when the, this right. right. Yeah, for sure. So the clash, um, what is it about the clash? I, for me, you mentioned how you got into reggae going to see Bob Marley. I yeah. didn't know what reggae was until Bank Robber. Like, like I, mm. remember I loved the song Bank Robber and, I, and the album that, that it was, it was on an album that was actually a collection of singles right. later. Um, and I loved that album. It was like one of my favorite clash albums that had a bunch of these and a bunch of, it turns out mostly reggae dub stuff. Yep. That's mostly yep. what it is. But that was sort of my segue into reggae, right? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I would say- Go ahead. I would say um, my first, very first experience of reggae is actually uh, Eric Clapton's cover of uh, <laughs> I Shot the Sheriff, um, which I can still remember hearing. I can, I can remember where I was, what I was doing. It's bizarre like that. But um, um, yeah, by the time, so then I, I, I found out about uh, Bob Marley, bought some compilation albums, found out about Lee Perry and, and uh, Burning Spear and a few others. Um, Toots and the Maytals. But uh, yeah, then I, I would say The Clash really, really opened the world of reggae up to me from the very word, from the very first album from uh, Police and Thieves. So I, you know, I find out this is a cover of a reggae song. Well, I got to get that reggae song. And actually one of the best compilations that I ever bought was uh, This is Reggae Music uh, Volume 3. And that was because it had Police and Thieves on it. I was like, I, oh, I got to yeah. this song. And, the, and ever every record after that um it's just to, just to clarify it's junior mervin who sang the yeah junior mervin it does yeah. The original, yeah amazing his falsetto voice is yeah amazing in that yeah, yeah. really cool. and uh and pressure drop by toots and the maytals and uh, was covered as well by the clash yeah. that's right yeah, on yeah. the B side of whatever english civil war um that's the one the one clash single that i'm missing i don't know where the hell it is <laughs> Also, if, if you listen carefully to their first album, the song White Man in Hammersmith Palais, this is a technical musical. Right. That's a that's, afterbeat they're doing. That's right. But that's not, actually, afterbeat, right? that's not actually the first album, Jason. That's okay. Oh, it isn't. I'm, I no, apologize. Because, no, it's, it's, it is the first album, um, the uh, American version. But the okay. first album, okay. the British version that came out in Canada. Uh, the green one. It was green. Yeah, green. The yeah. one was green, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, and they, they basically, the the uh, Epic Records never wanted to put it out in the states, and then they put out um, "Give Me Enough, Give Me Enough Rope," and then they went around and and they put together a, a record that was like half of the British album, and then a whole bunch of singles that had come out between the Clash and "Give Me Enough Rope," and they put that out as the Clash. So it's okay. a, it's a little bit confusing uh, the chronology, like I'm. <laughs> So, so were they were they a bunch of singles and they kind of put them together? Yeah, because the clashes the clashes idea was basically um, they didn't want the singles. They didn't want to rip people off, so they they felt that if they put out a single, that song shouldn't go on an album. Oh, interesting! Because they'd already, have already bought, bought it. Wow, single. that's interesting. Um, so it was the ripping yeah. them off to put it on a on an album. And likewise, I think that's why they were really upset about. Uh, the record company deciding to put out the remote control. For one thing, they didn't think it was a strong song, but also they didn't want to, like they they had more songs. They would put out a single, it would be a new song. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't go for the whole uh, single off an album thing. 
they i think they they got around to it but even like that album that you're talking about uh super black market clash or whatever it's called black market clash yeah yeah, yeah. bank robber that, that yeah exactly so but you know yeah. bank robber yeah. Um, that was never uh, released on an album until that compilation because yeah. it came out, um, I think it came out either just before or just after Sandinista and it's not on Sandinista. Interesting, um, interesting. So that's the way that, that's the way they did it though. Well, well, why don't we just linger a little bit on that because you raised something where they had an ethical, I mean, they basically- Oh, for sure. Our fans are gonna, first of all, there's a bunch of assumptions in there, which I find interesting. Yeah. Assume that the fan will have bought the single already. Yeah. That's a bit of a strange assumption. It's sort of like, it makes me think of these Marxist types who go, oh, we're gonna plan the economy out. We know what <laughs> it's gonna do. So we're gonna do it like this. Like, how would they know that, right? I mean, well, because uh, because <laughs> they, they did have this, uh, I, would, I would say, and I, I actually met them a couple times Really? Uh, they, really? Yeah. Oh. They had a they had a kind of a it might have been Marxist in in origin, uh, but it was not practiced by anybody else that I've ever seen to the extent that it was practiced by the class. This kind of openness to their fans that was uh, that was extreme. They would um, they're renowned for you know uh, letting people in through the back door who wow. couldn't afford a ticket, and it turns out um, that that was how. Uh, and I found this out from listening to a podcast, a really good podcast by um, Chuck D about the class. Oh, was, I've was seen funny. that 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 Chuck. I, I, yeah. I haven't listened to it, but I've seen the the, the promotion for it. I think you, I think you have to be yeah. subscribed to Spotify to hear it or whatever. But it's worth it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, anyway, it was really good. I learned a lot of stuff that I never knew before. But what I what I came to understand is that Mick Jones as a kid. Would uh, he was a huge fan of Mata Hoopla? And I knew that already, but he would basically he would hop trains to go to other cities to sneak into Mata Hoopla shows, and at, sometimes with their help, sometimes just truly just opening the back door and getting in. So the Clash were totally into this uh, into this ethic, um, and they they actually did that, um, and I got to meet them in Detroit in uh, 1979 wow. um, and hung out with them uh, at the after party at this bar where, um, as I remember it, and I may have, may have be mixing a few things up, but as I remember it, so yeah, David Johansson had opened for them and then we went to this bar afterwards and there was a band playing that had Wayne Kramer from the MC5 and wow, Holy. somebody from the Dolls, I can't remember who. You saw them at the after party playing that? Yeah. Holy yeah. moly, yeah. what a night of so music, gonna, man. I mean, again, the New York Dolls, the Clash, and then at, finished out with... Uh, and, then, and and at that point, unfortunately, I didn't give a shit about the MC5. I didn't care. All I uh, cared about was the Clash. So well, yeah, You can still um, brag you saw them, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Got the bragging rights, you know. But then again, I met them in uh, Toronto, and that was backstage where they let everybody... They let, and everybody who wanted to uh, was invited backstage. And, uh, just just, just for a second, for... sorry to interrupt. I just want to, I just want to get you. Can you talk a little bit about when you were hanging out with them? Do you just any, you know? You know what? I the, the, the truth is, Justin, <laughs> truth is, Justin, I took notes, and I'm going to be publishing those notes on okay. a blog someday soon. And I don't okay. want to give too much away. Okay. To say, apologies. Apologies. According to my <laughs> notes, according to my notes, 
almost every sentence that I said to them was, you guys should. Oh, man. You guys should put out that, put that on on a record. You guys should do more reggae. You guys should do this. You guys should, you guys should play so-and-so. Wow. Okay. Whatever. Uh, I, I was 16 that's... years old. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. That's ballsy, man. You apologize you're heroes and, and you're lecturing them about what they should do. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, listen. No, but they, the truth is, and you can, I I'd strongly recommend the movie, uh, The Future is Unwritten about Joe Strummer. But uh, okay. you see there that he just had a, it's a kind of a realness, but also like he really wanted to know um, about his fans. So that's okay. kind of amazing. And Interesting. They, they did know, though. I mean, they, the definition of a Clash fan is you buy all their records. Right. That is what a Clash fan is. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yeah. um, I, 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 apologies. I didn't, re, uh, you know, and, and I want to tell anybody listening to this, um, you know, Google Zonk Deck notes. Help, help <laughs> no, no, no. Read, I'm not, I want to read these. these uh, I'll, let, I'll let you know. It, I'll let you know. Okay, and we can put a link up. We can we can put a oh, link for up sure. On, yeah, onto our. Sounds good. Yeah, I'd love to read those. Those sound yeah. really really interesting. Okay, um, so that's that's interesting. I I you know I saw the Clash. I mean, it's it's sort of like my my story of seeing the Clash at Maple Leaf Gardens in nineteen. Oh yeah. I was there. Combat rock. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I was there. Years old. Uh, my brother got us tickets and uh, we went. And uh, that was the first big rock show I saw, big stage wow. show that I've, I saw. So and you were, how old were you? 11 12, or 12. Yeah. 12. Cool. cool it was cool. my 12th birthday, in fact. Yep. Awesome. Uh, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, and that was, and that was one of those just, I, in fact, I have a friend. I, well, he's, we've been friends. We were, we grew up together on the same street. And he became an, a musician in the '90s uh, with the famous. His band's name was the Fabulous Dirt Bikers, as I hmm. recall. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Nope. They were anyway. They were a band, I think, in Ontario or something. And um, and he also is an artist. He lives in Mexico now. His name is Mark Gabriel. If anyone's, he's actually a very quite a good uh, painter. And he told me, like you know, because you know, on Facebook you reconnect with people you haven't seen for like 50 right. years. Or whatever right so he and i had grown up on the same street together and then we split you know i came to montreal when i was in my late teens and he went and did other stuff um and so he but he told me in a chat we were chatting once and he said that rock show that show you took me to like just changed my life you know just mm. turned me like it was the thing that made me want to become an artist and a musician and a, you know wow. and we came from very different like my parents were these artistic hippie types. Like they were, you know, my mother was a, a textile artist and my father's a musician and, you know, and his parents, his father was from Austria and was a businessman. He owned an audio, audio video rental business and, uh, you know, and so they were more sort of like straight, let's say his father was a yeah. builder and, you know, and then he became the artist, right? And I became the more straight and narrow one. It's kind of an interesting irony mm. about us, but um, that's a just a separate uh, trajectory. But just to say that that show was it, it marked us both. And and we had a we had a just to finalize the thought. We, we had something similar when when I was about ten. His parents took us to the Maritimes, and it was my first time in Montreal. But even though my mother had grown up here, um, and I remember. It was just, it, it was, that was the thing that changed my life was yeah. the city of Montreal, like, you know, and it was just going around in, in the old city and then going to the oratory. I remember just, you know, going in there and she looked up, she pointed up 
to all the canes. You know, have you ever been to the oratory here in Montreal, St. Joseph's? It's a it's a big thing on Mount. Rose. I think I I think I would sit in the old city. No, no, it's it's on the side of the mountain. It's a huge church built up on the mountain. Oh no, I haven't. Around, no, I've, yeah, it's, I've, it's very I've only been around. I've not been inside it. Okay, but you okay. go inside. There's one room where you go in, and what's well, huge on the inside. It's built into the mountain, so it has all these different cathedral, like different rooms where there are organs on the inside. It's very interesting, and you can see it from all around because it's on the mountain. You can see this, yeah. like a, you know. But there's one room where there's all these like um crutches and canes all hanging up on the wall and supposedly brother andre the great you know cured people like you right. know this is what and so i remember she you know my, my my friend's mother pointing going you know see all that people would come here they couldn't walk and brother andre would bless them and they would walk out and everything and i was just like this is incredible you know wow. <laughs> so what was going on i'm not as a, i'm obviously you know i'm a rational person now there must you know i don't know what was going on but um, but anyway, just to say that we both had these sort of seminal experiences uh, that, 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 you know, uh, affected our life trajectories and his was that Clash concert. So that's really cool. That's yeah. really good. Um, I, I, I think there's probably a lot of stories like that, too, and, and a hell of a lot of stories about people who got into reggae because of the Clash, for sure. Interesting. Uh, big time. Yeah. Big time. Yeah, that seems kind of right. I mean, I, I wanted to. Yeah. Let's, so let's move on to reggae a little bit, because it was also true. When, when I, in the 80s, when I was growing up, I, I also remember um, I had a friend, my, one of my best friends, uh, Neeson Greenwich, his brother was living in, he was older than him, was living in Europe, and they were into this stuff from England, like they were into some reggae stuff. And one of them, I remember that uh, this guy, Smiley Culture. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, and I remember, and he had all these records, and one of them, he, you know, it, anyway, and I remember we used to listen to him, and he was kind of like one of the British, so I remember I was into him, I was also into Yellow Man, Yellow Man was big in the 80s, Yeah, right, and yeah. I still love Yellow Man, so there were a few reggae artists that were kind of percolating through, and I don't know, you know, how popular was reggae, I mean, if we... If well, that's a very good question, I, I don't really know the answer to, but I do know that for myself... Um, I kind of, it, basically, you know, back then, if you wanted to hear music, you probably would have to buy records. Right. And so, right. um, a lot of my stories have to do with, you know, okay, when I, when I was a kid living at home, I had um, some money to spend on records. And then, uh, when I moved out, there was a long period of time when I didn't have a lot of money to spend on records and the, my record collection shows that, but, um, I did. Uh, the other thing is that it happened to me is that I started buying uh, I maybe towards the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, I might have bought a little bit too much. And yeah. I, I, found, I have a few records that I'm like, this is. Even then, I knew it was derivative. I'm not going to name any names, but I'm just going to say even <laughs> then I knew it was derivative. And I kind of yeah. tuned a lot of it out. And I kind of and the truth is that the music was changing in a way that mostly didn't appeal to me. Now, since then, I have I have. Um, learned a lot more. I'm not going to say discovered anything because it's all been presented to me by uh, selectors of various kinds. You know, uh, mm -hmm. compilations have come out of dance hall and stuff like that that I've that I've gotten around to listening and liking. Yellow Man is one of them. Um, but at the time, I'm trying to remember, there was what. So who, actually, I can say one. Why don't, why don't we try and name? Why don't we just do something like try and name who the greats are? You mentioned Bob Marley. Oh my God! Okay. okay. 
Yellow yeah, Man, huge. Yellow it's, Man's got to be one of the big ones, right? He's way up there, yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, but he's a little bit later too. I mean, and that's it, right. He was younger. I could go along naming all the greats from from the seventies because I think that's when it, it really hit. Uh, you know, so, so if uh, you had to if you had to give me ten names and let's say Yellow Man and Bob Marley are on that list, and you, you know, who would you boil them down to? I mean, the, the, oh my God, it's people, and this is just singers, them. right? This yeah, I guess singers. let's just keep it as singers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Lone let's Ranger say, uh, be on that list. What's that? Uh, Lone Ranger would he be on that list? Um, I don't know, but I like Lone Ranger. But I, I, he's you know, it's 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 also uh, there's the singers and there's the DJs too, right? So, um, right. They, that's always been the case. But there's also, you know, like the the abilities of the singer and the abilities of the DJ are not necessarily the same. That's Lone Ranger true. is a DJ. Uh, Yellow Man's a DJ. Um, can, Dillinger can you just, was the guy. Sorry, who, to, sorry to interrupt. Can you just define? I mean, because I I thought Lone Ranger sings and and Yellow is Man he, is he maybe a sing J? Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. So just I'm to be clear, about, no, but just to be clear, like, so a DJ is is a person who does, makes the beats or whatever, but. I'll, no, 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 actually, no, okay. sorry. Okay. Right. Yeah. Let me, yeah. let me be very clear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because it doesn't have the same meaning in, uh, in rap culture as it does. Right. In, uh, right. Yeah. Because they're Jamaica, actually musicians Jamaica, they, in reggae. Yeah. There's, yeah. you know, there's the singers who usually sing more traditional songs. And then there's the DJs also known as toasters, also known as. Well, I'm going to leave it at DJs and toasters right now. Um, okay. They are not actually, they don't actually um, select the discs or play them. That's the selector. Okay. Um, and and the DJ in that case is actually riding the disc, right? So like a, like a jockey, they're riding the disc. And it, it started, it started early. Uh, there's a, and one guy named King Stitt, you can hear a couple of his records and you get in a sense of what he what he did. Um, one his one song is called Fire Corner. And I would say it's more uh, shouting. So it's more ex exhortatory and it was more like uh, it didn't necessarily go with the beat of the record. It was more just like exhorting people to dance, exhorting and, and kind of shouting right. out the name of the of the sound system and stuff like that and, and kind of trying to gather attention because it all it all originates not on record, but in in live uh, situation with. Um, this is to situate this. This is Jamaica in the '60s. There are these yeah. parties, right? They're, they're called sound systems, right? Yes, and, the, and uh, or 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 dances or or uh, dance hall eventually, but. Uh, so they're having. Does, so basically, actually, they say, "Come Friday night, we're going to have a sound system." Bunch yeah. of kids come, and then there's there's a guy selecting the records, the selector. There's yeah. a guy playing the records, and then there's a guy doing shout outs over top. Yeah. Necessarily with the beat, right? Uh, or, or shouting between the songs, you know, just kind of announcing and, and kind of bigging up the sound. Um, but then what happens in this, starting in the six, in the late 60s with you, Roy, is um, that the, the, the DJ slash toaster instead of just shouting, he starts basically uh, chanting upon the mic as one, one of the things that's called, but riding the rhythm is the main part. It's like, no, this is kind of, it's like an alternate vocal track. It might come yeah. actually between the sung portions or it might be only for the B-side. So that's where the instrumental B-side comes in because uh, there's not uh, enough gaps in the song. See. 
for the, right. the chanter. So they need fodder for the DJs. Like they yeah. need, yeah, yeah, right. They need and, that. Yeah. And that's the origin of, there's the origin of dub music because at first it's the, the instrumental track was simply, you know, the, the song without the vocals or with just maybe just the chorus. But then uh, they start playing around. So this with the sound you're you're making me think. I mean, because I, I I'm fascinated with the origins of reggae, and so this is so interesting to learn about. Um, you're making me think that effectively the origins of reggae are ten years before the origins of rap, and the New Yorkers, you know, the Sugar Hill yeah. and all them were. It sounds like they're basically just doing the same thing, but in New York, and that turns into a different music form in New York. Is yes, it does, and, and actually, I know many the, of them were West Indians too. The the, the, the first guy who to the first guy to. Uh, to do it was a uh, Jamaican named DJ Cool Herc. Yes, and I don't, yes, I don't yes. know if any one, of, that one of the origins recorded, yeah. but yeah. Uh, that it was definitely Jamaicans in New York who who started it, um, and it, it evolves very rapidly in in different directions. And the main one I would say is the two turntables and the scratching, because that was not what that was not so, what they were doing. So that was an invention in the in the U.S. That particular thing, the scratching was was yeah, what? and and actually the two okay. turntables yeah. too is. Um, partly just be for cost purposes or whatever, but that was one of the origins of the the role of the vocalist slash DJ was um, to to bridge the gap between the records. So if you only have one turntable, you don't want to lose people's interest. Right. So you, that's want, so you, you want to talk and keep the yeah. beat going with your voice while you're yeah. okay. So this yeah. is this is an economic point. The Jamaican oh yeah, for sure. They only had one turntable, right? That's right. That's right. They had two turntables. I mean, yeah. it sounds it sounds like and, a small detail, but look at the difference. Yeah, and and economics yeah. also plays yeah. a huge role in the whole thing because it's all about you know if you have the the expense is recording the musicians. That's the chief expense right. in making right. the records. So once you have a, a a recording of a song, and then you you can turn that into not just the song, but also then the instrumental version. You might add horns, you might add some other um, uh, instrument to kind of carry the, the melody. And then you have the, uh, the uh, DJ version, and then you have the dub version, and it's yeah. all from the same recording, and you've had, you now have five, six songs out of it. And in Amazing. many cases, it went well, well beyond that. Like some of these producers would put out you know, 20 tracks on the same uh, recording. I, I geek out on YouTube listening to all kind of, because um, I want to talk about Studio One so we can bring that. Uh -huh. I just go, and I, I've always geeked out on Studio One stuff, like, you know, things like Rapper Robert and Jim Brown and all this kind of stuff. And it's just amazing how good, it's like, it's just this sort of plethora of amazing music. But if you listen carefully to a lot of it, you know, Oh, there's that, you know, there's that uh, bass line or, or there's that. Yeah, yeah. If the same one is in this other one or whatever. Yeah. And I've read that that's what they did. They just had a bank of them and they would make, oh, okay, let's do another one. And they'd, you know, get a new vocalist in and have them doing something. Yeah, and, and then also, I mean, in I've the always, case of those. I've always thought, those... like, is that something, you mentioned an economic point, but it yeah. also struck me, is that a cultural thing about how Jamaicans do music, that they don't really care who did what as much as, other that's a huge question that, you know yeah. actually i i have to say my i have this plan to re-jumpstart my blog with the by republishing my ancient writings and uh and uh unpublished notes etc 
but the, I got bogged down on my blog trying to talk about copyright in Jamaica. It's, okay. a, it's, such, it's, a huge, be tough. it's such a huge uh, <laughs> conversation, but it, it does seem to be a different way of looking at it. But it's also, it's not unrelated to, you know, centuries of musical tradition and yeah. folk and yeah. jazz. I mean, jazz is all about uh, playing the same damn songs over and over again, but different. Riffing off right. the other guy, right? Like, yeah. listen, okay, and then and, and responding, call and response. I mean, yeah. and 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 musical slavery standards. in some senses, right? Standards you know? that that yeah. you know everybody knows the uh, basic uh, chords and chord changes to this song, but then let's let's just do something different that. with it today. Yeah, right. we're yeah. in in Jamaica, so yeah. There's a, there's that whole economics of savings because you are reusing the same recordings but there's also um the thing that's called rhythm and you can go to this a uh, couple different websites but in particular this one called rhythm guide or rhythm base rhythm base r-i-d-d-i-m base and you can find i was just looking one up the other day and there's uh 300 versions listed so they're not uh, all they're not all on the same recording uh because the musicians uh know know all these uh, rhythm and they and they redo them and if you're lucky they'll come up with a new one every <laughs> once in a while but um seriously in the case of dance hall the stuff has just been reused and reused and reused stuff uh rhythms from all the way back to ska days especially uh music from rocksteady and the early reggae period which was a little bit more little bit more I, I hate to talk about music because I'm so bad at it it's a little bit more melodic than mm -hmm. what came later the in the 70s it's much bass heavier and yeah, yeah. more more the 80s the 80s stuff the dub stuff is very sort of rhythmic and you wonder if it's sort of starting to sort of move toward into the realm of rap where it's much more yeah I don't because yeah. they were sort of co they were co-developing in some yeah. senses, right they, yeah right yeah, yeah and I know you I, don't I want to get bogged of, uh, down with the, the, the musical kind of details, but the, I, I understand what you mean there. Yeah, the, the, the influence of American music on Jamaica has always been humongous, and, and the, the origins of reggae are um, simplified to say it, but the origins of reggae are in American R&B. Um, Can I ask you something about that? Because I, I, I read um, or I, somewhere, maybe it was that course I took about rock and roll, was that they were listening to radio stations from Miami and New Orleans because they could pick them up and they were hearing rhythm and blues and they were trying to copy it. And the earliest reggae stuff you hear from the fifties is not really reggae. It's just, right. it's kind of like when you hear the old, you know, Rolling Stones and Beatles or whatever, it's just their exact copies of, yeah. there was a theory that the afterbeat was developed when somebody was making a mistake. Hmm. You know, typical, you know, the, 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 and that it sounded kind of cool and they kind of went with it. And nobody knows the answer to this question because as you pointed out a minute ago, it's it was all being done just orally among these people kind of playing and doing music in the sound systems and just doing music. And yeah, I, and I wonder, and because, because Jamaicans, like many Afro populations in the Caribbean, just seem to love to do music. They just seem to, you know, they love yeah. to dance, and do music. And that's, it sounds like a corny thing to say, but that's that's kind of what you need to do if you want to develop a new music form. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, do, there's something do, about right. there's something about intense uh, the intensity of competition, the intensity of production. I saw I read recently, and I I, I got to find it again because I, I don't think there's anything reputable about it. But I like this uh, 
I like this uh, estimate. Uh, somebody in the 90s uh, guesstimated that one quarter of the Jamaican population was had been recorded. Wow. Yeah. I remember I remember reading once on, on the liner notes of one of those uh, uh, Studio One disc things that Jamaica at that point um, exported more music, like in terms of just records than like produced and exported more music per capita than any nation in the world. I think that's definitely true because they, you know? they just put <laughs> right. out so many records. Uh, they, it was basically, I think it went... Uh, I mean, there's three million United people States in on, Jamaica. I mean, exactly. It's, you know, it's I think I think it's, so <laughs> because of the diaspora, because they have this huge export market, and then of course when when it started catching on with uh, with non-Jamaicans, um, right, right. Uh, this huge market. Um, but uh, oh, where was I going to go with that? <laughs> in any case, so, I mean, it'll, it'll probably come back to you. Yeah. But just just to say that um, there's something about the repetition. So you have a bunch of Jamaicans listening to American music in the 50s, and they're just screwing around with their instruments. And maybe one of them starts to make a mistake and they're kind of going with it. And like that could well be the origin of that. Well, yeah. And then, then the other the other you know? part, I mean, it, the other part is, OK, there I would say there are uh, American records that you can say this is the origin of Sky. Oh really? Um, and there, yeah. but there's definitely a lot of uh, Jamaican uh, R and B uh, from the late '50s, where you say, "Okay, this is definitely heading towards sky." You can tell that, and I'm not right. sure. I, I'm not sure what uh, what is a mistake and what is not a mistake. But the other <laughs> right. influence, the other influence on the formation of sky is is Jamaican folk music called Mento, which is has also been called Calypso. Okay. <laughs> my joke is my joke is they themselves called it calypso to avoid confusion but really they just did it because they wanted to sell more records so when <laughs> when harry belafonte took off in uh 55 56 that was calypso uh with the first million selling album of all time oh, that's and it was incredibly popular and calypso itself became the, the the genre became very popular and so calypso is trinidadian um, but it right. Jamaican Jamaican music uh, Mento sounds a little bit like Calypso again because I'm not good at talking about music. Right, I can't right. really say what it is that sounds like it and what it is that doesn't sound like it. But um, it was close enough that people would merge the two of them together. But yeah, Calypso was huge. Um, uh, two people who made Calypso records who might surprise you. One of them is uh, Robert Mitchum. The actor. Robert Mitchum, the actor, wow. and the other one is uh, Louis Farrakhan. He was <laughs> that doesn't surprise as, me as much as Robert Mitchum, although he was known as the charmer, yeah. and he made a, a quite a few uh, clips of records actually. But um, Robert Mitchum made a, a number of them. He made at least one. Wow. But Louis Farrakhan made more. Wow. Yeah. Farrakhan. Okay, so just to situate, Robert Mitchum was a. Very famous Hollywood actor in the in the fifties. He did the first Cape Fear, an incredible yeah. actor. Yeah. Uh, Louis Farrakhan is. Um, how do I politely <laughs> Louis Farrakhan? He's the leader he's, of the Nation of Islam. The leader right? of the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. a polite because I'm sort of thinking of. I, I just find him sort of such an odious <laughs> demagogue. I think right. it's a demagogue and everything, and just you know, and he's a racist. I mean, he's a, let's be honest. That's true. That's true. If we define a racist as a person who doesn't like people of another race, he is yeah. 
I, you know, yeah. interesting. I didn't know that he was a Calypso artist as well. Yeah. <laughs> Every talented individual, Louis Farrakhan. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, right. But yeah, so okay. because they wanted to sell records, Mento artists uh, started calling themselves Calypsonians and they started calling their music Calypso. But it's actually a slightly different kind of music. It's, and it's Jamaican in origin. Um, they, might, they might even do songs from Trinidad, but in a slightly different beat, the Mento beat. And that Mento beat is, has, does have the afterbeat. Oh, it and does. Okay. It, it is right. It is related to what uh, Scott. I'd say you know it's it's impossible to say what the first Scott record really is, but the one that has been sort of touted or first yeah, yeah. is "O Carolina" by the Folks Brothers, uh, oh, yeah. produced by uh, by Prince Buster. And it, one of the incredibly unique things about this record at the time is that. Um, they brought in uh, some Rastafarian drummers for the session. Interesting. So Interesting. this is in 1960 or 61, something like that. Maybe uh, 60 way back. The other yeah. thing is about is that that Jamaica uh, became independent in 1962, and that's also yeah. Yeah. the general birth of ska is 1962, and it's kind of like embracing independence, embracing um, uh, you know the idea of an independent Jamaican culture. And then wanting like this Jamaican Jamaican music, and that was ska. Okay, interesting. I I, I want to come back to the political um, point in just a second. Of the uh, just because that relates to something else I want to talk about. But I just want to sort of, um, as you may there, uh, you know, summarize your, um, your your point just for a second. So you've got late fifties, early sixties. You got Jamaicans who have their own indigenous musical form called Mento. Yeah. Also listen to music from the the, the uh, fellow island, you could say, of Trinidad called Calypso, which is a similar sound. And these are things that were entirely indigenous to uh, both uh, Jamaica and Trinidad. And they're also listening to American music at the same time on the radio. Yeah. And then sort of the three, those elements together sort of, you know, uh, as we say in French, you know, sort of mixing together, right? You know, yeah. come together there. And, and that basically turns into the, the sort of the incredible fl flourishing. Um, and you've, you've mentioned this political thing. I, I wanted to ask about that. You also mentioned um, uh, Jamaican diaspora. So how important, because you can, you can think that, you know, you've got, you, if, 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 if all the Jamaicans of the world only lived in Jamaica, then there would be a market of 3 million, whatever the population would right. be without the diaspora, people maybe would be more, but, you mentioned, so they're also selling records to Jamaican diaspora people in New York and Toronto and London and wherever else. To, right. Um, and then those people are interacting with the local culture there, right? Yes. You know, so you've got, you've got this interesting thing going on where I think most of it is connections with England. I think when I really look at the... the, the yeah, I mean, I'd say Jamaican the, the, music, the cross is, is that fertilization accurate? really happened in, in England, I'd say. Um, you know, I... Uh, there's huge uh, Jamaican population in New York, huge and in London, population in, in Toronto yeah. and, and other places in, in yeah. Canada. Uh, but, um, but in England, it's, it's really, you know, it's really big. And also right. it, yeah. Jamaican music really caught on with uh, the white youth uh, from quite early on. So Scott right. um, and, and uh, Rocksteady and early reggae. I, I really used to big. think when I was growing up as a teenager, I thought that ska was a white English form of music. I didn't right. 
understand that it and then later I learned that it actually was developed by black immigrants, I suppose, in the UK. Is that well, I mean, it was it was I mean, it was it was the Jamaican music and it was very popular in uh, among the Jamaicans in in uh, the UK. In the UK. Yeah. But then also, I mean, uh, white British people started making it very early on as well. Uh, Interesting. Nine is the is the year for some reason. I don't. I know very little about it. I have a book about it, but I haven't read it. It's called Skinhead Reggae because that was the the people who listened to it. And there were a few bands based in uh, in England at the time, but mostly they were listening to Jamaican music. But then also, I I don't know if you ever heard uh, Judge Dredd. The he's a I know British, the name. British singer. Very... Can I ask you something quickly about the skinhead thing? Because that you're making me think. When I was younger, I remember an association that skinheads were like British skinheads, and this was replicated in Canada, I guess, in the 80s, were into this thing called ska. I remember as a kid, I would sort of hear about this. And it, and it struck me that there was this racist thing about these skinheads. Is there some... That part, I don't yeah. know the... the um, How the that came about, it seems certainly, so contradictory, it, right? I mean, it does it's, seem it's, contradictory. And uh, I would say that the, certainly... The the '60s skinhead culture was not racist, and it probably was anti-racist, really? considering that really? they listened to um, right. Jamaican music. They were so fond of Jamaican music, but okay, uh, I didn't know that. Skinhead, yeah. skinhead as a racist movement started, I think, after punk. It was it hey. was like a branch hey. of punk, yeah. um, oi music, and uh, you know, screwdrivers, and the only band name that I can really remember right now that actually went all the way over to you know pro-fascist or whatever what uh, I, 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 I I didn't know that I, I thought that skinheads were always these I, I had I had always understood that there were all these immigrants coming in from the Caribbean islands and other colonies and then there were these local poor youth and they were sort of you know, and they would shave their heads so when they got into fights, they couldn't have their hair pulled, and they would. Well, that's that part is probably and true, and I, I, I think you know, I think yeah. skinhead, skinhead, and the uh, link between skinheads and violence has always been true. But right. uh, at first, no, it's like it, it's one of these bizarre things. Skinhead reggae is what they called it. They didn't make <laughs> the music, but that was the music that they loved. Um, wow. Judge Dredd I, is kind of. I can't recommend him. He's kind of uh, scurrilous, uh, what I like to call a single entendre uh, music, where it's like there's no other interpretation other than the sexual. Um, right, right. And it's it's not good, and it, it's kind of it's kind of cheesy. But they he also had, did have an effect on like the specials and the two tone scene, which is what you know when you say it, it's interesting too, because uh, two tone was very consciously you know. Anti-racist and biracial. I mean, that's what it, the the meaning of the term is. Okay. And it started with at least two, maybe three bands that were both black and white. You had um, the Specials, uh, the Beat, the, uh, the English Beat, the, the English yeah. Beat. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, yeah. The Selector. The Sel Madness was always Madness. Yeah. I don't think had any black guys in it, but um, okay. and and so it's like. That is the second wave of ska after the Jamaican wave. And then the, then you get into the third wave, I would say, where it's where it is basically, you know, to me, I call it punk with horns or very, <laughs> yeah. very popular punk with, with that. And, and I'm sure there's some good stuff. In fact, I know one band, a couple bands that I like, uh, 
the slackers and and the uh, the agrolytes, and there's probably a few more that I'm not uh, remembering right now. But um, and I I can't say that I hate all of no doubt either. <laughs> so 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 we've got so we've got something that that sort of comes about in Jamaica, right? Yeah. I mentioned a minute ago, and then it transmigrates mostly to the UK, where there's all these other forms that crop up, and it's not clear why the white British youth are so adapting to this music form yeah. it seems to be almost mysterious and it's, it's but they loved it and and in you, you know, know in particular in in uh in the clash uh paul simonon he grew up uh listening hanging out with uh jamaican kids and listening to jamaican music and going to jamaican hey, house parties interesting and, uh, um i think see, see, see that, when i hear this when i hear this i hear this is what cross fertilization really gives us it, oh for sure people you know getting together and going wow you're doing it like that that's kind of cool and then you know and then the jamaicans are listening to the american musicians and they're all kind of you know oh yeah kind of making things together you know it's so interesting now one of the weird things about uh, and i'm not sure about uh about american uh reggae made by jamaicans but one of the things that i found out is that jamaicans of canadian des descent were not necessarily interested in the music that other jamaicans really uh, jamaican canadians were making um because it wasn't the real deal they wanted stuff from uh, kingston um and we, i don't we, know we should it... we should pause for just a second to, to really give a shout out to some of the great canadians like uh jackie um what's me too jackie meet me too and there's yeah. a billy williams that there's some incredibly yeah. good canadian who are of jamaican origin artists yes and, and in particular those two you guys know. they made a bunch of music in Jackie Mitu was such a legend in, in Jamaica that when he died, there was like a state funeral for him. Yeah. I only found out about him in my late 30s. And this guy lived in Canada for like most yeah. of the It's like, why didn't I know who Jackie Mitu was? He's, you know, it's like, and he's an incredibly good pianist. And yes. And, and he was also, he was an arranger at, uh, at Studio One in the 60s uh, right. before he, right. before he. Pretty handsome fellow Canada. too. With his oh, yeah. tie and everything, yeah. <laughs> you know, with his cigarette and everything, the pictures of yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, I would say, um, when I hear a Studio One record, I don't know, not I, you know, without Googling and all that stuff, you never know what the origin of it is. But um, I would always assume that Jackie Mitu and or Leroy Sibbles, who also came to Canada, uh, had a hand in it. Leroy Sibbles, wow. who was the lead singer for the Heptones, he started off as a bass player and he's on a whole bunch of studio one records and, wow. and the bass okay, line so is so Canadian important, you know, so, and yeah, and he ended up uh, moving to Toronto and, and put out a couple records here, but uh, there's yeah, also, and Willie you know, Williams, who was also connected to the clash is it was a Canadian. Well, he, he, uh, yeah, he moved to Canada too. He in the, in around the same time, I think early seventies, he, he, he did what's that famous clash song that Armageddon time. Armageddon, of course. Yeah, that was yeah. that was his song originally. That's his song, yeah. Right, and he's a he's a he's a he, he was he was not born in Canada. He, he no, no, right? he's he's okay. uh, Jamaican. But okay. I actually got right. to meet uh, uh, Willie Williams about really? ten years ago. He cool. he was uh, touring with Big Sugar, and he oh, came nice. to uh, Windsor and and played here. And I got him to sign my uh, oh, I got him to sign my Armageddon Time single. So that's kind of. Pretty oh, much man. my prize That's, record possession. Oh I man, think. that that you're gonna hang on to that to your on your cold dead fingers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you're gonna be holding on, on top of us. 
Yeah, yeah, Big Sugar. I mean, an interesting. I, I like Big Sugar a lot. They do a lot of reggae stuff. They do. Good. They do. Um, very tight, you know, just as yeah. a, also a Canadian band as well. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I, I, I discovered all this stuff, you know, the Willie Williams and Jackie Me Too, and all this stuff must have been going on in Toronto in the 80s and everything and all this stuff. And then I, I mentioned this to my dad, who was a working musician in Toronto at that time. And he was, like, you know, doing jazz and classical music. Never heard of him. Never have yeah. no idea. And I thought, this is really amazing how there's this. And so if you're watching, you know, I don't know, what, what's the Canadian Music Awards, what the Junos or whatever. Mm. Like, I mean, are they doing things with Jackie Me Too? Like, it's sort of like there's. Definitely not. Definitely not. That, you know, is it Jake. racism? I mean, there, there is, there is a. There? Uh, that's interesting. It's the, the one thing about both Jackie and uh, Willie and Leroy Sibbles, for that matter, too, is that uh, they, they kept feet in both worlds. And. And I think um, it, partly because of this kind of suspicion of Canadian reggae, they continue to like go back to Jamaica to record and then put Sus out the record. Can, can you elaborate what suspicion of Canadian reggae? Yeah, I think, I think exactly. that uh, a lot of uh, Canadians of Jamaican origin and descent were like, no, we want the stuff from Kingston. We don't. We don't oh, need. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And I, th that's I think very it, sad. Boy, it is a little bit sad. But it's. Yeah. I think the, the same might have been true in uh, in New York and to some extent in England as well. But eventually, and and for me, I really fastened on uh, on some British reggae that, uh, in particular, Linton Crazy Johnson and and Dennis Bovell. Um, Glad and you mentioned also, them. Yeah. And then a little bit later, the uh, record label On You Sound and Adrian Sherwood. These are, I'd say that uh, that really carried me through the 80s. Yeah. I uh, was listening, yeah. just buying those records and listening really hard to those records. And I kind of lost touch with Jamaica. And at the time, Jama in Jamaica, uh, Dance Hall was really taking off. And I, I remember the one record, uh, Dillinger. Um, cocaine in my brain and and hearing oh, it, i love dillinger i don't know fantastic what, yeah i know but at the time that i first heard it i i'm like this isn't reggae what the hell is it and and uh it took me a while <laughs> to get my to wrap my mind around it it's, it's the honest truth is um, it so it, it, it's from what you're saying is interesting I, I think that maybe when you get into that dillinger kind of stuff i think it's really cross fertilizing with rap at that point. oh for sure Right. Sure, so I think sure. maybe that would have been your reaction is like, wow, that sounds too much like pop rap music. I'm just speculating. I don't, maybe, you know. maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's it's so early that maybe I wasn't really familiar with rap because I, I can't I can't claim to have kept up with rap in any way, shape or form. But, you know, I, I was uh, I was into, uh, you know, the uh, Sugar Hill stuff at the time that it came out. And I was into, you know, early Run DMC. Run DMC and, then, and uh, I mean, what kind of stuff were you, you know? Beastie Boys, Beastie Public, Boys. Enemy. Public um, Enemy. So, but yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was that and maybe it was, uh, it sounded like disco. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, it took me a long time to wrap my, to realize that I really loved disco. I, I was, uh, I was uh, that, that, that's not like uncommon when we hear something new it's kind of like that sounds kind of weird and then yeah go back to it oh and usually what, when that happens for me maybe this happens to you is like for me this is getting into some of the dembo and the reggaeton and stuff that when i first heard that stuff i was like that stuff sounds really weird and then and and after a while see what what happens is you have to learn how to listen to it that's true 
right? Sure. You have to, you can't, if the first time you hear any kind of music, it's going to sound weird, but then there, there are certain things, once you start listening to it on a regular basis, there are certain rhythmic patterns you start to expect. And yeah. it was Jordan Peterson or someone was saying something about one of the, some of the greatest music is usually when there's, when, when your brain is expecting a certain thing and then there's a, something a little bit different thrown in there, you know? That's interesting. That's right? interesting. I'm and say that's two. really what draws us into a great artist is they can just, you know, kind of just do the beat a little bit differently all of a sudden. And you're like, wow, that's, and you, but your brain is attuned to up to that point, basically. Yeah. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to say two things. Okay. So you, you don't have to go into the whole history of how I discovered various things about Jamaican music, but I'm going to just mention that I had not heard Mento until maybe about 15 years ago. And it was uh, because of this reggae reissue label that I follow called Pressure Sounds, they put out a compilation of mentor music. And I, I bought it because it was on the label. And I would say probably the first time I listened to it, I just thought, man, that sounds a lot like Calypso. And I put it aside <laughs> and I didn't listen to it again for probably a, a, at least a year. And then I started listening to it. And there was a couple other compilations of Mento that I'd come across either at the radio station or I or I bought them online or whatever. And um, then I just got totally like a hundred percent into it for <laughs> a, a period of maybe five years. I would, Interesting. would listen to everything I could get my hands on. And Mento is, it's such a, um, unlike reggae and unlike certainly dance hall where there's just a zillion records, um, I think it, it it might be possible for somebody to to own every at least, record, at yeah, least have so, heard yeah. every single Mento song. If not, it, it'd probably be very be very expensive at this point to own it all because people right, are right, they're rare, and unusual. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think it might be possible to to have heard every Mento song um, yeah. recorded in the fifties. Anyway. I that's that was kind of my quest for a little while. I think it was like I got to hear more and more, and um, so you uh, your brain how to listen to I, that music form. It sounds like you're saying your brain. Yeah, ha, you had to learn how to, yeah. to, and then once you did, you just got obsessed and how amazing. Yeah, and it's and uh, actually with in the case of Mento, it's such an upbeat music that I think uh, for me and uh, there's this one blog that uh, or not a blog, a website that this guy. Uh, runs a mental music website and it's just fantastic uh, resource um, for people who love mental and he, he he defines it as music that makes me feel happy and it's true like you <laughs> you can't stop tapping your foot and you can't stop smiling when you hear it so um but, i gotta go um, check some of this stuff out you're, you're really you, you definitely should yeah. i but i just wanted to mention on the on similar but unrelatedly uh, you're talking about uh, your 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 ear is uh, used to hearing these patterns, and then and then little tweaks make a big difference, and I think that's very true. But uh, I just was listening to uh, because I know that you love it, and I really didn't know it, and I still don't know it. Um, Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith. Now, I, obviously, nice. there's a couple couple or three songs on there that I know very well, but I did I had not heard the album. Uh, in living memory, let's say I probably heard it in a somebody's bedroom in the night when you were half high and exactly, drunk and, yeah, and yeah. But but <laughs> yeah. just listening yeah. to it just now, um, I'd say the first three songs or something like that are just like they're very, and I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. They're very derivative. Derivative. They're just a hundred percent blues structures with different words, and 
All I would, I was like, okay, I can see why people would like this, but I'm not going to bother with it. And then Walk This Way comes on, and then another song, and then Sweet Emotion, and then No More, No More. And I'm like, these, they, they had something. They were not simply derivative. They really, they had something to, to offer, and they offered it, and it's great. Um, the truth is for me, about me and Aerosmith, though, is I just, I, by the time whatever 77 rolled around, I was punk and I <laughs> just straight ahead rock and roll didn't interest me anymore. And uh, it wasn't until years later that I even bothered. And that was because of uh, Run DMC. Yeah, then walk this DMC. way. It's like, holy shit, this is a great song. Um, and by that point, Aerosmith themselves were like deep into the cheese, eh? And the yeah. salads were. <laughs> Kick rock. Once they, uh, that, but. once they stopped doing drugs, I think that's that's kind of when they. Did. Oh, that's so sad. That's the, isn't that's that the usual? Wisdom, isn't that right? the story of? I mean, I I shouldn't say it because I haven't read the book, but isn't that sort of the story of Keith Richards too? That it's, I don't know. I mean, the Stones because I I love Voodoo Lounge and and uh, what's that one they did in the eighties with the stickers on the 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 uh, what's that one. Uh, the Stones album. Remember that one where there was stickers. Uh, there was a woman's body, and there were stickers covering her her tits and everything. Um, anyway, I'm blanking on the name of that album, but that was all done in the '80s when he had stopped. Yeah. Open, and, and that was really good. And you still love it? Yeah. No. Sure. I mean, look, it's not. It's. I mean, look, the Rolling Stones have a have a kind of a um, uh, a pantheon of music from 1966 to 1975 that is just. You're never going to get better than that. Nobody, you know, whether they're doing drugs or not, right? I don't know what, you know, but uh, yeah. I, I don't think they sucked as bad as Aerosmith did. That's no, I, no, that's true. You know. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they, 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 this it gets into a thing of what makes, you know, creativity. There's a sort of a peak creative point between the, the, the late teens up to, like, if you look at most of the great pop artists, their best yeah. is you know, 17 to about 30 kind of thing, their most incredible output. And then they do other good stuff usually, but it's not, you know, it's never up to that point. It seems to be, there are probably some exceptions to that. I'm sure some people listening to this would say, you know, uh, well, there's this or that exception, but the Rolling Stones and Aerosmith seem to fit into that. I don't know how much the drugs have to do with that. Good question. Fair enough. Yeah, you're you're right. You're probably right. I I hadn't... uh... I haven't thought of it that that's a kind of a deterministic way, but it's probably true that it's, it's a bit too deterministic. To maybe it has but, to do yeah. with, with youth and, but it also has to do with like, um, you know, getting stuck in a, in a successful rut is a way, one way of putting it's it. True. Like you, yeah. this is what your fans expect, right? This right. Is what you're going right. to do. So. so you give it to and them. Yeah. In a way, what's, re- what's remarkable about, about the clash is that they did not, I mean, they were short lived as well, but um, they did not, fall into that they that's true they were not part of it i it's funny looking back and 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 when i published my republished my uh review of london calling that i wrote when i was 16 or 17 and i was i just thought it was terrible the album yeah really yeah i I thought it was i thought it was a big letdown and and that and uh now i think it's a great record and uh, but uh, subsequently after that, um, Sandinista came out, and I just I still think to this day, what a waste of vinyl. Um, really, there's, there's yeah. one great record on there, and they've dragged it out onto three slabs. <laughs> and uh, you know, thank God for modern technology where you don't have to go get up and take the needle off the record. Anymore. Yeah, yeah, you could just click a button yeah. on your phone, and it skips to the next. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but still, I mean, the thing the thing about them, and and it proceeded with the next album with combat rock it's like 
they they're not going to get stuck in the rut. They they were making it. They, the they did as, change. They did evolve. Yeah, yeah that's it. and I think they were making the music as complicated as they could themselves almost at all times. I think that that was really what I think Mick Jones is kind of genius and he he probably could have been making any kind of music uh, from the word go. Um, but he was he was kind of uh, teaching his bandmates how to uh, make the music. How to too. play, yeah. And, and, <laughs> I, and, and play. that's not including uh, Topper Hedden. Topper Hedden is a sweet, generous uh, genius of his own. He didn't, yeah. need, he didn't need any education. Yeah, it's it, it, the, the, the London Calling was a was a big record. I mean, all those, I mean, those albums, I don't listen to them anymore in their entirety just because the Clash, I don't know. I I still, I mean, I still like their music, but they haven't actually aged that much with me, hmm. you know. Um, That's interesting, too. Aerosmith album, I still love that. I, I will still sit down and listen to that Aerosmith album, but I won't. That's, that's fascinating. I don't know why. Um, even though I recognize the greatness of the Clash music, and I like some of the tracks once in a while. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll listen. To, especially White Man and Hammersmith. Bob. Yeah. There's something that's an incredible that track song, yeah. that just... I don't know. I think it's the reggae beat. And the way at one point he flubs one of his lines. I don't know whether he's he's doing it deliberately or if it was a mistake. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, there's something that, at you know? the very beginning. Yeah. It, you think it's funny or something. Ugh, he, kind of, he kind of, he flubs it. And it's like, is that just a mistake? Or did he do that? Like, because Mick Jagger, when he, on with, um, with uh, what's that dance? I miss you. He deliberately sings off key at one point. My, my oh man, I got to check that out. At one point, "Miss You," you know the song "Miss You." Yeah, yeah. My father pointed it out, and my father is not a big Rolling Stones fan, but he pointed out how how Mick Jagger was deliberately singing like high and off key, and and I so I don't know whether Mick Jones, who, whoever was the lead singer, I'm I'm forgetting now his name. If it was Mick Jones, uh, no, it was uh, Joe Strummer. Joe Strummer, right? Yeah, I don't know whether he did that deliberately or just there's something about that track that really draws me in. I can't. I'll I'll check that. I'll check both of those things out and get back to you. I I had never noticed that about Miss You. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I um, you, you'll hear it. It's it's. I I don't want to try and imitate it because I'll no. You know, I'm I'm not Mick Jagger, but uh, obviously hardly because of my age. And partly because of my DJing, and partly because um, I really, really love the album "Some Girls." Oh yeah, known, "Some Girls." I've been great. known to claim that it's my favorite Stones album, and even <laughs> to say that "Miss You" is my favorite song, which is just like that. You just, see, you see, that proves. I, sorry to interrupt, but that kind of proves it. Almost disproves what I was just saying a minute ago, because that one came out long after they had like their pantheon of stuff starts with satisfaction and goes up to about uh you know um um uh, sticky fingers or something like right that, right you know you or whatever like something like in the early 70s right it's only rock and roll usually is where yeah so it's a, it's a few there and then stuff after that is considered oh they're disco and they're this and they're that yeah. and i love some girls as well i think it's got amazingly good stuff so yeah it basically what i was saying a minute ago is sort of bullshit in, in well except, except i think it, it does take over in the 80s as you can't you can't really like a whole stone's album after that i, I, don't, yeah, know. That's, I don't know that's fair maybe i'm wrong maybe <laughs> that's, I'm wrong. I don't know. That's, that's a good point i mean most of their stuff that i think some girls are probably their last great album album tattoo you would be my favorite uh right that's that's the one you were trying to remember, you know yeah, uh, sure. tattoo you is a bit like the uh, the clash album we were talking about a minute ago of all the singles it was a bunch of stuff that they had laying around and they oh yeah i kind of put it all together and it's fantastic as an album it's yeah 
you know, Mick, uh, it's funny. Uh, that guitarist uh, they had, Mick, uh, they have Sonny Rollins playing saxophone on that. And Mick, um, who was the guitarist they had in the early 70s? Mick Taylor. Mick Taylor. Yeah, they're all called right. Mick. You know, what's the deal with Mick? British <laughs> <laughs> Mick. Anyway. Uh, so. A few different guys named Taylor, too, it seems to me. But really? Yeah. yeah I, think, right. I think so. Okay. Um, so, all right. Why don't we move on a little bit? That's really so interesting about all the stuff of how reggae came about and the mental. It's just, I mean, I'm just, it's blowing my mind. But um, let's move on. Um, let's move on to the current era. Um, just like what's been happening in music and say, let's say in this century, let's say, I would think of it like mm-hmm. everything we've been talking about so far was the literally the previous century, right? Yeah. Mentioned anything from this century. So, um, you know, um, I mentioned a minute ago about, um, the reggaeton and, and the Dembo and all that stuff, um, which is this century. Um, a parallel I see there is you mentioned Jamaican independence and, and you mentioned Jamaican diaspora. And we also mentioned um, um, economic development. Now, Jamaica was presumably developing economic, economically through that period as well. Um, so you've got those three elements. If we put aside the independence, because the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and Panama, are, you know, um, have different political, um, let's say, status. Uh, yeah. And, you know, um, but we do see the other two elements, right? I mean, just just to give you a little bit of the background. What became reggaeton was actually immigrants from Jamaica in Panama. I don't know if you're aware of this. Right, right. And they were they did this thing called reggae in Espanol, where they literally just if you listen to a guy called El General, who's one of the he's a you would like this guy. He's a yeah, I'll check him out. Reggae guy. He's just doing reggae, but he's singing in Spanish. I mean, it, you know. And so and so he was one of the progenitors. This is sort of in the eighties. And then it sort of goes into Daddy Yankee in the early 90s, and there's DJ Playero, there's all these kind of people that, and it, it kind of morphs into this whole music form. But I see a similar thing, but not less obviously not connected to the United Kingdom, but connected to New York and to the United States through Puerto Rican and Dominican immigrants in New York City, right? Right. Kind of interplay going back and forth. And then, and the third thing is for reasons not clear to me, in both cases, it both enters the popular consciousness at one point, right? Because in the 80s, reggae and, you know, all that stuff began to be kind of popular in the general population. And in this century, we've seen reggaeton and dembo and, and bachata yeah. reforms. But I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. You don't have to speak directly to the reggaeton or anything, but just yeah, give me reactions to that analysis or anything. Well, it, it, it certainly has to do with... Uh with economic development, although interestingly, in the case of Jamaica, it's very uneven development. And, and you, uh, you alerted me to this book, which I've since bought, but have not read, Confounding Island by Orlando Patterson. And he, oh, he's talking God, in yeah. particular about why is it, what is it that makes Jamaica so uh, powerful Unique? culturally, yeah, and yeah. yet so still kind of basket case and politically yeah. whack and um so i i still i i have to read the book to get a handle on what he's saying but i do know that in the case of the music um it was this intense competition that uh they really drove it and, and that, uh, the 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 intensity of the competition so much so that you know we we talk about uh sound system well that would be you know, that would be like, uh, say, Duke Reed or, or um, Cox and Dodd or Prince Buster or somebody like that, setting up a huge speakers in, in a park and 
and going at it for the night. But then they also developed this thing called the Sound Class, which would be, uh, you know, there's a, the one song, four big sound in a one big lawn. Uh, so you could have up to four, like in each corner of the park oh, with these huge sound systems and they're competing for the wow. people in the middle. So that, that's wow. just the level so of direct competition for yeah. the crowd, yeah. like literally, and, and, which, which, which stage are you going to gravitate to? Yeah. That's, yeah. Wow. And the competition starts at the very beginning with the, the American record. So it wasn't just so much uh, listening to the radio because radios and especially record players were kind of rare in Jamaica. It was about these sound systems that people would go out. It started in the late 50s where um, Cox and Dodd had the best selection of um, American records. So he would, he would bring in these American records, scratch everything off of the label, give it some code word so that the selector knew what he was going to play. And, but the whole reason for scratching all this stuff off was so that the rival sounds couldn't just look over the selector's shoulder and say, oh, well, this okay. is And wow. this is incredible. <laughs> now, Prince Buster just died a couple of years ago. He was an amazing, amazing guy who started off Started off as a, as his name uh, indicates, he started off as a bouncer at okay. one of the sound systems. Interesting. But he became a known to I think I think he was working for Cox and Dodd, and and so he uh, Cox and Dodd would send Buster over to do Greed's dance, and he, Prince Buster had such a good ear that he could identify with pretty much certainty the record label that it was on wow. and so then if he could get so he, he was his get, spy he would send him there spy. to listen and go his, his okay spy. that's so such he and knew, such or whatever he knew yeah. the sound of uh american r&b so well that he could identify basically wow. the studio it came from he knew the label and, and the then sound, he, oh, that's amazing yeah. also get some of the lyrics which of course he could then that was enough information for coxon or whoever else he was might be working for to then get a copy of that record from America and play it themselves, because it was all about it was all about like uh, having a monopoly on the latest and greatest songs. Nobody else wow. knew what they were, yeah. and That's amazing. and then yeah. it, then it continues from there. And this this actually goes on to this day. Is um, they want exclusives. So an exclusive in a lot of cases, uh, as far as I can tell, I don't I don't certainly own any of my myself, but an exclusive is a is a dub plate, so it's not a permanent record. It's a, it's something that you can play a few times and then it falls apart. Um, oh. and it's a dub plate where, where uh, a popular uh, toaster, rapper, DJ, whatever you want to call them, is shouting out on behalf of that particular sound system. So oh, yeah. you know, it, it might be a, it might be a song that they're they've already done. It might be, you know, just a bunch of, uh, oh man. That that podcast I recommended to you, Jason, of the history of the of um, of rock. The Andrew rock. Hickey is that yeah. the Andrew? Yeah, I'm gonna check that. He's, out. he's got so, he's got a. So just just if I could a, just sort of summarize a little bit what you're saying there. So they they, they would they would they, he'd send this guy in and spy him. There's this incredible yeah. competition, which is so interesting. So you've got literal actual in Jamaica competitions where there are four corners. You've yeah. also got Treasure Island competing with Cox and Dodd Studio yeah. One. You've got the Channel One and you mentioned another one. Yeah. Uh, oh, tons of labels. 
Yeah, tons, tons of labels that they're all competing. So that's a feature of this, right? Is oh, for sure. Capitalism is like really, you know, a very important part. In yeah, the, and 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 right? part of it also, and and this is why there's so many records, and 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 uh, there's people, there's people going crazy to this day trying to trying to own as many as possible. I just saw a guy on on uh, post on Facebook, and he's not trying to own them all. He just wants to digitize. Every right. single studio one record. Well, I, I just, if I could just interject quickly about that. So, and also that the, they're so competitive that they want to make things that will literally sort of, you know, destroy after use, basically. So they can have that one time thing or whatever over the other. That's right. And I wonder, people must have made audio tape recordings. Of well, some in some cases, yeah. Yes, and, right? and, and actually, uh, that was really popular, you know, because, because uh, cassettes didn't really. Um, come in until the 80s basically yeah right? yeah, yeah so that's right. when that's when recording sound clashes became very popular and and there are people out there who have them who, who digitize them who hoard them all that kind of thing yeah. but uh back in the day uh, before my time um mm -hmm. when this when this competition over just the american records was going on yeah they uh the the idea was that you could you could have a song that nobody else had, and if you kept them in the dark about it, you could have it for forever, and you would always be top. Um, right, but with right. these with these dub plates, actually, some people they they don't they don't necessarily self destruct. It's but you can't play them too many. They times. don't sound good after a right. couple dozen listenings or something. So actually, now uh, yeah. Pressure Sounds and a few other labels have found DJs who have held on to. These, wow. some of these dub plates from the 70s and they you know one more play to to digitize it and they get it out on a record you can get nice. i and i and i've fallen for a lot of these and i love them but um <laughs> they put out a quite a bit of uh at least scratch perry where it's really the same song over and over again and just slightly different uh versions um and these are one-off dub plates from the 70s that uh Let's, We're not met, never meant let's, to laugh. Let's talk a little bit about Lee Perry because I think it's he's a really important figure. We haven't talked sure. about him. He he strikes me as just a kind of a genius of geniuses musically. You know, I, I don't know. It's up there. I, I don't know the mechanics of it. I, I know that he 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 produced Bob Marley's first. He the, the song the first song Bob Marley did was actually Lee Perry's song. And Bob. Well, Marley, actually, the, no, you're you're is, it, is you're that leaving wrong? out you're leaving out the prehistory. But yeah. Um, uh, I apologize for my ignorance. Uh, of Bob, Marley. Bob Marley started yeah. at Studio One with uh, Cox and Dodd in the, like '62, something like that, with uh, Simmer Down, and and he he made a lot of records before he met up with Lee Perry. But I would say, interesting. Okay, the, my apologies, uh, including but, yeah. no, that's okay. Um, yeah. If you're not totally into it, you might not know. And and yeah. uh, <laughs> I, um, Bob Marley made a bunch of records um, with. Uh, with Johnny Nash, uh, not literally Johnny Nash and Bob Marley, but uh, recording for Johnny Nash's uh, record label, and okay. that was, it was slightly after that, that that he hooked up with Lee Perry, and that's okay. when the first they put out the first albums. Let's say the the, the right. rest of the stuff had come out, and, and that's kind of one of the early hits, I think, of Bob Marley, the clown, Mr. Brown. He's a clown. Yes. Yep. Like yep. An early hit by Bob Marley. I don't know. Maybe wasn't as successful. Is that correct? Um, I think it was pretty. I think uh, that stuff was pretty uh, successful in in uh, Jamaica, in Jamaica and in and Jamaica. in the UK. Um, right. And those those are the first. 
those are the first albums that I knew of. Uh, certainly, when I was a kid, was um, um, Soul Rebel and African Herbsman, which, which right. are yeah. uh, produced by Lee Perry. And there's a a lot of those songs actually were remaking earlier songs from the Studio One period and from the from the Johnny Nash period right. as well. But but Lee Perry really put a twist on it, and also it was his band, uh, the Hippie Boys. That became and the uh, also known as the Upsetters, who became the Whalers. So uh, the Upsetters, and, right? And, uh, Carlton yeah. Barrett and um, Tyrone Downey. Okay. And, and then of course Bob Marley then, turns into this international superstar with the right. Whalers, and, and then does all, everybody knows you know the all his great hits there. Um, you know, to you some extent, that? I would say Is that because I don't have much to say about that because I'm not a big fan of all that stuff. Right. And if you well, you know, in a way, um, in a way, it's kind of. Uh, it's kind of a, well, there's nothing natural about it, but it is an evolution from where he was before. So for one thing, he's, he continues to redo songs from his past, from either um, the pre-Lee uh, Perry period or the Lee Perry period. But one thing that I wish I could talk more about, I can't because I don't know enough about, you know, music, music and recording, recording. All I can say is that the Whalers learned so much from Lee Perry that yeah. was, you can say that what they learned from Lee Perry carried them forward through all the other. So records. without Lee Perry, the Whalers and Bob Marley are not the Whalers. And Bob, I don't. Right? I don't think so. Like that. I don't think. Yeah. So. He, he's an incredible voice, an incredible songwriter, and all that stuff. But the sound. Yeah. I think was yeah. was uh, developed by Lee Perry, and and interestingly, when when uh, Bob Marley was shot in Jamaica, and he and he uh, left the country. Uh, partly to recuperate, but partly also to cool his head and cool everything. Um, he went to London and he put a, and he made some records with Lee Perry, uh, Punky Reggae Party and uh, Keep On Moving um, and something else named, oh, no, 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 I, knew, I know what it is. Uh, Natural Mystic, they, they put out a, a right. record of Natural Mystic and maybe one other, one or two other songs. Now, when it, when it came to recording Exodus, he didn't use um, Lee Perry, but it was definitely, it's like Lee Perry. The sound was already in place by that point. And, and Lee Perry had so, recharged yeah. him at that point. I, I mm. really do believe that because, uh, mm. because, yeah, he needed to get back to, I don't know, the fun, I suppose, is part of it. Lee you know? Perry, I mean, I, like, I, I've listened to a lot of Lee Perry, and he he's done all kinds of different stuff. And he was on one of the Beastie Boy records at one point. Yep. That's really amazing. And he's just one of these people who, he just seems like one of these people who is a musical genius, but you, he couldn't teach anybody how to do what he does. I, I read an interview with him once. It was the most incoherent thing. I could not, I, have you ever, did you read that interview? I, ha, I, have, I have read quite I, a bit. I, I could not understand. It, it sounded like garbled nonsense. Like, with sentences like, you learn things from the past and you do things together and then you put them. And of course the past is important, but the present is important. It sounds like Donald Trump or something. It's I, I, um, you know, I just <laughs> recently, the guy's a musical genius. Like it's like, I recently <laughs> dug up an, an old, uh, newsprint magazine from the eighties, uh, from 1980 called reggae news. And I, and I think I'm, I think I'm going to republish that. It's not mine to republish, but I think I'm going to republish it anyway. 
And uh, is, is it coherent interview. in any way? No, uh, there's an yeah. interview with there's a great interview with Linton Quasi Johnson. There's even an interview with Bob Marley in there, and then there's an interview with with Lee Scratch Perry, and that was just after he had burned down his studio and moved to Europe. I think that must be the one. Yes, yeah. right. Because I remember it is, something to do with the fire is, and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. whack. And I and yeah, I, I, he if he wasn't crazy. <laughs> he certainly did a good impersonation. He might have been like Hamlet, you know. He might have been just feigning the whole time, but yeah, he certainly did a good impersonation. But well, I, uh, I think it's partly that his brain—it's just—it's sort of like how Marlon Brando. You know, I remember reading a thing about how Marlon Brando was giving an acting class, and he was this terrible acting teacher. It's sort of like he didn't know how to—he didn't know how to tell anyone how to act. He would just do it. And he yeah. didn't know how he was doing it. He just was this amazingly good actor. And so for him to describe what he was doing, is like, I, yeah, how am I going to do that? And I think Lee yeah. is kind of like that with music. He he just kind of was doing it and he became this genius at it, but he couldn't, He I don't think he could articulate anything. I, it's interesting because I, I, and the, you may be right about that. And you don't think of, I mean, he did have a uh, great influence on music and on production and, particular but I don't you don't think of people as being his students uh, despite what I just said about Bob Marley but um, uh, on the other hand like a, a very important figure in Jamaican music has to be mentioned as well is uh, King Tubby who was mm -hmm. actually yeah. not even a producer he was an engineer so he uh, he uh, kind of he's one of the inventors of dub music because on one of these instrumental uh, sides of an of a single, he started messing around with each individual track, adding reverb and delay, oh, interesting. compression, uh, other musical effects that I can't name right now, but messing around, dropping out the vocals, bringing them back, dropping out various instruments, bringing them back, um, different echoes on different uh, tracks, the whole nine yards. And he taught uh, uh, Lee Perry uh, something okay. about dub. I didn't but, know that. Uh, and, but he also taught um, he also taught scientists and Prince Jammy and Philip Smart and a number of other people. So he actually was uh, a mentor. He's another progenitor then, right? He's a huge progenitor. Yeah, like a progenitor. Uh, he, yeah. Prince Jammy and scientists both went on to um, to production as well as as well as uh, making some of the most incredible dub music of all time and um so there's a few key individuals here that oh for sure cox and dodd i have this feeling cox and dodd must have been some brilliant genius he is incredible it's, uh, incredible from business and, and, but also to have an ear for what's good that's not evil. yeah you know to, no. that sounds good and that doesn't sound good i mean yeah. you know that's actually art at least you're going to do it where it's going to be successful with the public, right? Any yeah. idiot can have an opinion, but if your opinion lines up with the public more often than other people, then yeah. you're doing something. Yeah, Cox and Dodd is kind of like, uh, he's kind of like uh, uh, Jamaica's um, Barry Gordy in that way. Like he really yeah, had a good true. And And yeah. it's funny too, because he's not always right. And say, likewise with Barry Gordy, like there's, there's Phil tons, Spector. Of, tons of stories yeah. where, where, Barry Gordy put the, uh, uh, you know, said no to a song and it turned out to be, be a hit. Yeah. yeah. In particular, Phil uh, was another one, right? Who oh, yeah, for sure. Incredibly for good sure. year for things and, and not always right. I mean, Phil Spector got some things wrong. He released some things that didn't hit and other yeah. things he swore was terrible. I can't think of any examples right now, but, you know, turned out to be big hits later on. Right. Yeah. 
And one of, one of the things I was trying to say about Jamaican records is like, they were always just testing the market, right? It's like, and, and that's one of the reasons why so many records is because they were always looking for the next hit. But in order to find the next hit, you might have to put out a hundred records. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, you get a lot of records that way. That, that seems to be the business model of pop music generally. And that's still true to this day is you, you sort of don't really know what the kids are going to like. It's kind of like, it's really, um, this is, so I'll bring it into the, the 21st century here. I was my, I try and sort of follow along with what's going on. And I've noticed a few patterns. Um, one of the things I've noticed is, you know, about 10 some years ago, Lil Wayne, you know, the rapper, Right. Started doing stuff with uh, with the he started using the auto tune. I'm sure he wasn't the first to do this, but using the auto tune as a kind of an instrument rather than just a way of modifying the voice. So it sounds good. And, and people said, oh, he's, you know, kind of like the, doing the wah wah pedal of the 2000s kind of thing. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah. Sing, you know, and then it became a thing where everybody was doing that, you know, all through the most of the a lot of the rap music, you know, a lot of them were doing that. Um, and that seemed but that seems to have run its course now. Thank God. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, just I, I loved it. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, it just doesn't. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> the, I don't know if you if you know anything about African music. I know very little about it, but my friend Doug is always trying to turn me. Doug on Green. Shout yeah. out to Doug Green. Shout out to Doug, Doug Green. Green. Yeah. So he um he uh, turned us on to this musician Madhu Mokhtar, who's from the uh, sub Saharan Africa, African something country. like that. Yeah. Sahel. yeah. And he's a great. It's an incredible guitarist, and I've seen him now uh, twice, three times, twice, and mm -hmm. um, really just an incredible guitarist and vocalist, and kind of like uh, I'm just gonna say Jimi Hendrix to throw it out there. Um, but really, uh, that good, huh? Doug has Doug has a couple of his records, and uh, one of them is like a hundred percent auto tune. So they like auto tune caught on in uh the, the sahel and every record had to have it at this one period of time but then fortunately they've moved on because for me it's like i don't know i i don't know if you know um uh zap and roger from the 70s uh, more bounce to the ounce no no he had this thing the vocoder that he was oh yeah well there's to. there's the, what's that famous song famous hit do you feel like i do oh that the peter frampton yeah yeah peter frampton that's kind of an early um it was, and also there's 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 a there's a subcultural band called uh tobacco i don't know if you ever heard of them no. and, and they they use a vocoder they, they, yeah. that's one of their signatures and it, it, the processing of the voice is nothing new. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying no. to say Wayne started that off, right? It's just, yeah. it became a big thing in pop music. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, more Bounce to the Ounce with a humongous hit. Uh, and also I just found, oh, you're not going to know this song. Scritty. No. <laughs> well, uh, shout it, say, say it, because someone listening might know what it is. Yeah. Is it Scritty Politi? Boom, yeah, there she was. By Scritti Politi with uh, with Roger as well, and uh, so he 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 moved around a little bit, but um, it's a great sound in limited proportions. That's all I can say. I I, right, I it's right. not like I've it's not like I've been tuned to pop music, um, but I have been exposed to it quite a bit over the last uh, 15, 20 years from working in a in a store 
where we always they put the radio the on, right? Something Either like the radio or then it became yeah. this kind of cam uh, music that was kind of the, the greatest hits of the last 50, 60 years. So I've heard yeah. some <laughs> crap that I never wanted to hear again. And I've heard some new crap that I never wanted to hear. And you ever hear anything of, that you had heard of before stuff. and you're like, hey, this is great? Is that ever yes, happened? Yeah, definitely. Okay. All right. Definitely. And I'm 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 encountering good music all the time. Oh, that's and good. I'm especially yeah. encountering uh music that from the past that I never heard before, which is to me uh almost more important. It's interesting. You know, yeah. back, back when I was finding something new from the from the from the vault, let's say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You no, know, and that part of that mento to some extent is that it's like it's a music form that is not quite dead, but almost dead. And uh, the greatest records all came out in the 50s. And I'm just finding out about it now in the 2010s yeah. or whatever. I'm planning to do a, another music podcast with a friend of mine, Thierry Alexandre uh, Zambo, Taz. He's a friend of mine here in Montreal, also a musician. And we were talking about it today. And we were sort of planning it a little bit. And some names came up like that. And a couple of them that I had discovered from the past were uh, that I didn't know when I was younger were... Um, as much were Link Ray and Bo Diddley. Oh yeah, you no know, Link. Yeah, Ray, when I listen to Link Ray. I hear like every single rock and roll guitarist, basically, kind of like it. Just you know, it's like I hear yeah. like Don Wood and Jimi Hendrix and everybody and Keith Richards and, it, and mostly the power chord thing. It's like he was the first one to do that. Just yeah. raw power, you know, an open. Yeah. it sounds like he's using some sort of open tune as a technical point. But have you have you seen? Uh... That guitar movie with uh, uh, Jimmy Page and um, Jack White. Interesting. Okay. And who's the other guy? And the, no, here, no. here's where my memory goes. I can't tell you the name of the movie, but I'll. So it's a documentary I'll, with Jimmy documentary Page from Led Zeppelin and Jack White playing. from from the White Stripes, right? Yeah. 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 And there's one scene where uh, where Jimmy Page puts on Link Ray. Uh, just on the record player and the, just the look of bliss that comes over his yeah, face when you yeah. hear that first chord and it's like yeah for sure that is some awesome awesome stuff I'm like that I said, was something I discovered from the past that I I mean I sort of you know it's interesting once I started to listen to Link Ray I was like wow Batman like he's like yeah yeah the Batman thing is like that was him you know okay yeah. you know that you know um the other one was Bo Diddley you know I got oh so so awesome Diddley and started to listen to that. Bo Diddley is one of these guys it's like there's something so unique about his sound. No one yeah. sounded like him. Chuck Berry, who I also adore, for, didn't quite have that. There's something about the rawness of Bo Diddley that's yeah. really powerful. And that was another one that I said. But one of the things I wanted to get to here about just this, so that the, 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 the auto-tune is used to, you know, as the wah-wah pedal, but it's also used to keep people on key. So you, right. a lot of pop singers... If they're, you know, if they quack or whatever, they can just sort of straighten it out or whatever. And I think there's been a kind of a reaction to that. Like, if you listen, there was a big hit last year um, by an artist called Lizzo. Right. Uh, the she, She's kind of a, a, a an African-American singer from Minneapolis, and she's sort of heavy set. And I'm blanking on the name right now. I should have written it down. Maybe uh, if, if, you're, if you're Googling things on your phone, Anyway, it was a hit from 2021 yeah. by Lizzo. Everyone knows it. Um, we can put a link up to it. Um, but if you listen carefully to that, uh, it, it's sort of like she can obviously sing perfectly on key, and she is. And then sometimes she goes off key in this really, it's, it's, it's really interesting for a certain amount of time. And it was this huge hit. 
right? It was this massive hit. And I was like, what? And then there were some other ones I've heard recently where the singers sound like they're kind of singing off key. And I'm like, why is that? Like, why are these things such big hits? Is it that like one hypothesis might be that people are too stupid to know what a good voice sounds like. And they just, <laughs> that seems like a, not a very reasonable. But, it, but, it, but you're, that's right? an interesting you know? observation. I wonder if it's, if it is a reaction against. That, that's what I'm thinking that people sort of are, like, I think this is my theory is that people have gotten used to that. And then the things that are hitting are the ones that are going within it. And then again, going back to the thing of being a little bit different sometimes. Yeah twisting it up a little bit yeah but singing off key you have to be able to sing on key and then off key at key moment at sort of very important moments in a tune and that's what's grabbing people's attention these days yeah that makes sense actually doesn't it i, and I, I mean know. one of the things one of the things that i've noticed about uh the music that, that was played in the store anyway that was going to be pretty mainstream and and usually pretty clean uh vocally and and lyrically and what and whatever it was um uh just this kind of uh going crazy for uh warbling is what i would call it or i, I oh guess yeah it's called word. mumble rap or M and uh, mumble rap no, is that what you're referring to no that's not what i'm no I'm okay talking about, pardon me i'm talking yeah. about really good singers uh just fo showing off uh just how good they are and i mean people <laughs> like uh christina aguilera in particular right, and right. uh adele and um who's the other one Anyway, I've, there's a few of them who are like, they're just incredible singers and then they're showing off because they can hit like 27 <laughs> different notes in one syllable or whatever, which I think yeah. is called melisma, but I don't quote me on that because I really don't know. But, Sounds like uh, a kind of bragging, sing bragging. Yeah, right? yeah and, and yeah. also kind of, you know, to show that not everybody is, is uh, can do what I do. Relying on auto-tune and all that kind of crap. Oh, I see but, what you mean, right. They're deliberately yeah. using, yeah. Okay, Adele. Adele yeah. singer who doesn't use any autotune. She has an amazing voice and she's, you know, incredibly good and everything and very, very well known. Right. Uh, yeah. Kind of what you mean. Is it like. That's sort of what I mean. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but, but I, again, I, I don't know. I, I always find out a, just a little bit too late or every once in a while I'll learn about a brand new song just because it is so danceable and people request it. You know, that's <laughs> right. That's right. the best way to right. find out. You know, it's like, I don't have to know everything about what's going on as long as I know a new, a new right, jam song right, every six months right. or something like that, then I'm fine. Yeah, no, but yeah. actually I'm glad you mentioned, I'm glad that I made the mistake of thinking it was mumble rap because mumble rap is a thing. Drake, right. and a lot of the big rappers are doing it. And I think that is an example of, it's kind of trying to do something in a unique way because you can't actually process mumble rap to make it sound better, really. You have to mm. do it you have to kind of mumble in such a way that, um, you know, you, you can't auto-tune it to make it sound better. The, the, the rap yeah. has to be able to actually mumble like that to, you know, to, <laughs> you know. and it's, it's probably much harder. It's probably one of those things. Oh, I can mumble. It's like, yeah, you try doing that. And make I'm going to have to look it up. I don't know <laughs> right? what it is, you know? <laughs> but I did want to just say, uh, uh, speaking of what impossible uh, uh, vocal tricks is uh, snow. Um, oh yeah. Like, yeah. And, and to just, I, I said this to you uh, before uh, privately, I have to say like to find out that the, I don't know if it's the biggest reggaeton song of the, of this era, but it's for Daddy me, Yankee and Snow Informer with, by, uh, yeah, Con Calma. Which incorporates not just, it's not just a uh, cover of Informer, it actually, it's, it's got Snow on there because who the hell else can do? And I know Snow was completely influenced by the Jamaican music that he was hearing 
and he grew up among a bunch of Jamaicans and in those, Toronto, James in Finch. Toronto, and yeah. and he uh, and he has every right to make that music. But uh, even Snow, I think, has come to regret the fact that Informer is the best-selling reggae uh, single in American history. And also now, I hope he regrets the fact that he's got the biggest-selling reggaeton song. Yeah, I it's, hope he I hope he regrets it all the way to the bank. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he is. I mean, it's. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to say a couple of things about that. Is that's something I think which is very poorly understood about the Jamaican um, uh, music is that my like I don't really care what those Jamaican singers are saying most of the time. It's right. vocal work. They developed a thing in Jamaica where they it's kind of like a scatting, I suppose, is the best way yeah. to describe it, where you basically use your voice as an instrument. And as you point out, Snow does this, and many of the yeah. reggae greats did this. Um, I'm well, it's certainly even Yellow Man right for now, sure. But that, right? You know, and, and Yellow Man. That's an important, yeah. Yellow. Man. My favorite song by Yellow Man is uh, Zunga 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 Zunga. Yeah, <laughs> Zunga. Yeah, however. You know. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see, that, that to me is is just the the, the great, like, is it, like I, I'm a person who all the life I've listened to rap music, I never really listened that much to the lyrics as much. Mm. You know, it, I was always sort of interested in the flow they had and then the beats and how they were putting it together. And people, yeah. oh, well, they're just talking. It's like, well, some bad rappers are just talking. Most of them who are good at it actually are doing something interesting with their voice, right? Yeah. Um, and the other thing that um, I wanted to get to a little bit is just the, you mentioned how there was all this competition and how things changed, um, you know, very quickly in the sound systems in, in Jamaica back in the 50s. What seems to be happening today is it seems like there are new music forms morphing and developing so quickly. I can't even keep track. I, I keep I try and keep an ear to the ground. And one of my sources is a former student of mine who I'm good friends with. Uh, shout out to Andrew Baraganucci. And the other day I was chatting with him online. He said, hey, bro, have you heard this UK drill? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? So he sends me a couple of links. Have you heard of this? It's a style in the UK right now. There's this guy called Russ Millions, who's a big, big uh, progenitor of this, and he's huge in the UK right now. And it's fantastic, this it, this Russ Millions guy and this style. And it's mostly like, if you watch the videos, most of the guys are black, and they're British at this point. They're no longer Jamaicans. I mean, they're right. black, yeah. you know? And I'm like, this is so amazing. And it's it, it's kind of like, I, there's one track you would really like called Reggae and Calypso, where they're actually- I'll give it a try. But Reggae that and Calypso. Great. And I'm kind of like, and I'm I'm listening to this stuff going, this is so amazing that the same thing is, and I don't know what exactly defines UK drill from trap, from right. that, from this. I mean, there's all these subcategorizations. I can't even keep track of them all. Yeah, no, I, I gave up on that a, a while yeah. ago. I, back when I was doing a radio show, um, I used to try to know what these terms meant, but I gave up. It's like me, <laughs> it just it becomes a rabbit all, hole that you're just to me it's all, all dubstep, the time, right? And, and there's good <laughs> dubstep and there's bad dubstep, but it's all dubstep to me. So I don't. And, yeah. and I know that it's actually it's a drone bass or drill or trap or, or what's another one that grime. Um, there's so many grime I hadn't heard of, but yeah, yeah. tons um, and tons and tons of of, of uh, genre names. Yeah. Yeah, the, this particular one is is a British one. It's called UK Drill. And this Russ Millions guy, I was like, I got so into him. I started looking, is he going to come to Montreal? So I wanted to go see him uh -huh. play in the UK right now. So this thing is only right. 
in the UK right now as a, as a, at least to go see a show, you know, I'm right. going to break out. The other interesting thing about it is listening to these UK drill guys, him and a bunch of them is they slip lines in, in Spanish all sometimes. Oh yeah. Cool. It's like, which is like, what's going on? The, there are many Latin American immigrants here in Montreal and there are like zillions of them in New York. And, you know, so I can sort of understand why, you know, uh, you know, pop artists in North America would be using Spanish, but the UK is not really a place that I associate a lot of. So this shows you that the the extent of this uh, of of the yeah. Mexican and Dominican influence. It's I gotta I gotta check that out. I have I have a short playlist of um, what I call Spanish reggae, and it isn't really Spanish reggae. It's it's uh, reggae songs with one or one or more lyrics in spanish okay and, yeah uh, so it's not el general, el general no it's not el general, entirely no. in, in spanish yeah right it's like <laughs> there's a there's a a great song um oh man is it called Huzahana by lee perry that okay it 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 might there's a little bit of spanish there might be just a little bit of nonsense really? i'm not sure 100 lee perry using lee spanish perry, way back way back okay. in the 70s. yeah yeah so why would that be? Why would reggae? Well, I mean, there's a, such a cross influence in the in the in Caribbean, the Caribbean. Between, between the islands. It's just incredible. And um, I recently, actually, a, a guy from a guy from Australia has put out has conglomerated a whole bunch of musicians and and uh, vocalists together and put out. Uh, now it's I think it's going to be two albums. Havana meets Kingston. Um, but he's actually, he's by no means the first person to cross pollinate those two things. And there were, there were musicians, one of the Traveling great- from uh, island to island and going to- Hopping from island to island. Islands. Yeah, yeah, and, and, uh, right. and there, there's always been influence of the music, uh, um, you know, from, from New Orleans all the way down to Trinidad that go and then back- All and the forth, way down the West forth. Indies and the- Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, what you're saying is interesting because um, because I, I sort of look at, my wife is from the Dominican Republic, yeah. so I know that country a fair bit, and I speak Spanish, you know, well enough that I can talk, obviously. Um, and so I sort of see, like I, and we went to Trinidad on vacation once a few- Oh, cool. It was very interesting to see. And I've been to Puerto Rico and I've been to Cuba and I've been to South Florida, so- so I've seen some of these places a little bit up close, especially the Dominican Republic. And, and in some senses, there sort of seems like a Chinese wall between the English and the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. They seem to have hmm. a lot of cultural distinctions. On the other hand, most of the population on most of the island is descended of Africans. Uh, yeah, Cuba, exactly. Puerto Rico and the, and are a little just, less There's African, really so but, much. You know, there's, there's really that, so much, right? There's really so much going on. Uh, always has been and, and still to this day going on. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit looser actually in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the colonial back era. The in the yeah. colonial era and back when they were, uh, it was all the British empire and then, and then Cuba, right. Was it was independent and, and, um, but uh, the, the movement of the peoples is huge. You, you reggaeton came from Jamaicans and Panama. My, right. And then back to Puerto Rico through the like cultural connections. Yeah. That's huge one. on Costa Rica. Yeah. And, and yeah. in Costa Rica, there's a town called uh, Puerto Viejo that uh, used to be in English called Old Harbor. Old. Yeah. And, and there's a bunch sense. of Jamaicans there uh, who speak <laughs> a language they call Mecatelu that is basically uh, Jamaican Patois. And uh, they make a music there that, I still haven't heard. I've heard about it. Wow, um, but, um, interesting. Yeah, but yeah. There's so and and also like uh, some various. I, I I can think of a couple of right offhand. Uh, 
uh, a great Jamaican musician named Carlos Malcolm, who was born in Cuba. And I think also actually Rita Marley might have been born in Cuba. Born in Cuba, yeah. And her, then her parents well, were. Well, Cuba, Cuba used to have a, a much a stronger culture of people immigrating there until- Exactly right. You know, people used to yeah. go to Cuba to immigrate. You don't see that anymore because the no. country's been so ravaged by the communism, right? Yeah. But you do see a lot of movement. I mean, my wife, her great-grandparents immigrated from Haiti to the Dominican Republic, just a oh, yeah. movement. Right. That's a very common movement on that. Yeah. And her grandfather, her father, um, Juan, shout out to Juan Rodriguez, one of my favorite people. Uh, his father immigrated, spoke English and immigrated from St. Thomas. Uh, uh -huh. Sugarcane, uh, you know, there's a big yeah. sugarcane thing in La Romana. And they had immigrants from all around the place, right? Yeah. And so, so, he, so Fanny's father actually can speak English, interestingly. Yeah. Uh, not that, well, not fluent in it, but he can speak it well enough. And so, I mean, there is a lot of, there is, St. Thomas, I suppose, was an English speaking island in the, I guess it's one of the US Virgin Islands or something. Oh yeah. Um, somewhere there and the people there spoke English. So I suppose the smaller islands have less economic activity and people would go to the bigger ones. And right, exactly, yeah. Spanish, Which is one of the Cuba, reasons why. Right, or yeah, Dominican Republic, would, you're going to a Spanish speaking island, right? Because Why people would go to Jamaica and also, right. but also why, you know, um, Panama was such a draw was through the digging of the canal. It brought canal, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's all this kind of movement around the Caribbean. And this is all also we're, we're not even taking into account what would have happened in the slavery time, which would right. have a cross-pollination as well. These slaves being moved around the Caribbean, that's a whole other story that we have, you know, we wouldn't be able to know much about things because we don't have any recordings of the kind right. of that people were doing. But there's obviously some connection to, usually what seems to happen is there's some connections to an African route that cross pollinates with whatever the local culture is. So the oh, yeah, for sure. blues guys were listening to will be coming around the mountain when she comes or whatever. And then mixed, you know, like the early blues guys were sort of, you know, American standard pop music mixing with their own, right. Yep. Jamaica, yep. something similar going on. In a different yep. way. And then on the Latin islands, you've got it mixing with Spanish, a whole other musical tradition there. Right. You've got a Right. That I know nothing about. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a whole world, man. I mean, yeah, for sure, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, you, know, you know, and one of the interesting things, and I just barely know about it, uh, is uh, New Orleans. That it's uh, the same kind of melting pot, right? Of the, it's got uh, French, it's got Spanish, it's got uh, English. Totally. Yeah. And, New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans. A long time. New Orleans was also the port through which the slaves landed too. That was right. In, right. Right. Uh, landing. And that's there, there was a famous place in New Orleans called Congo Square, <clears throat> which where um, slaves were allowed to congregate on Sunday. There, it was an unusual thing in the U.S. South, uh -huh. uh, and they, that's where and they would play music. Other parts of the South, blacks were not allowed to meet on right. Sunday. You know, so that yeah, um, that you know, explains a lot. Not sure why in New Orleans it was more libertine. I guess I guess they had less. You know, um, I mean the other the other truth about it is that uh, you know everything unique about uh, American uh, music and maybe American culture in general uh, comes from uh, the African uh, yeah. contribution. So you know, in a, in a way, things. yeah, they, I agree. The. the uh, the elites in uh, in New Orleans might have noticed that actually they might have said oh, yeah. you know, we, we need some new music let's 
Yeah, yeah. You want how much of, I mean, you know, in the old days that the elites might have thought this is something that may help the morale of the city. I mean, you don't know what they were, uh-huh. why. I mean, I don't know. Sure. I never heard that before. And now I'm going to yeah. make a little note about that too. <laughs> yeah, Congo yeah. Square. <laughs> yeah. The other cool. thing I'll mention before we close, another uh, cross-pollination um, interesting thing is South Florida seems to be a place where you get um, you get a mixing of uh, Latin with American influences. Right. Uh, Miami, right? You get, because, uh, you know, the joke is always, uh, what's the best thing about Miami? It's close to the United States, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but no, I've, it's, it's on feeling, my list. It's like, there's old people here. There are a lot of Jews. There are French Canadians in Hollywood Beach. Yep. All these Latinos. And then there are like Haitian immigrants and Jamaicans. And I saw a great reggae band there once. And I mean, went to a bar and a really good band playing yeah. the reggae. Yeah. You know? And and the sort of the, the ultimate expression of this exploding onto the world music scene, of course, is Pitbull, right? You, right, right. Who came from the Mariel Boatlift. Who, whose family, you know, were expelled from Cuba, a brilliant genius who memorized apparently this Cuban poem when he was like four years old, this like, you know, 100 page poem, apparently, you know, he could memorize. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Pitbull? He, yeah, Pitbull. Yeah. And then, of course, he becomes this huge pop star. And if you listen, here's something interesting. If you listen carefully to Pitbull's music, you and I have talked about this on Facebook. He raps in English and in Spanish, and he does a lot of Latin stuff. He uses a lot of samples from Jamaican reggae. If you listen very carefully, and I, hmm. and whenever I hear that, he used Funky Kingston in one of his songs. He used, you know, and I've always thought, wow. So something. So he's got this thing where he he knows what's good, right? So he, yeah. he's like, if he's gonna build a tune or whatever, Funky Kingston is a pretty good, <laughs> for sure, pretty good bass, for sure, for sure, right? And it's like, so he's mixing that with the American rap and then the Spanish influences and stuff. And I think I've always thought his his um uh you know sort of it's almost like a, a mixing type thing is a yeah it's interesting because I, I certainly have heard pitbull i've seen him on tv i i but i've never like listened closely to his music and i should give it a try i'll definitely track yeah. down that song that you mentioned with the with the funky kings i'm forgetting the name of it right now but it's one of his um yeah um fanny and i are planning to go see he's coming he's going to come to the bell center i think this october so Listen, uh, Martin, boy, I just, I've got a whole bunch of things that are popping into my head, but we, you know, we've already been going for a long time. Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really, I'm just, I, I could probably talk to you for the whole day, but I'm sure our listeners are probably asleep by now. So. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for having me on, Jason. It's been, yeah, it's been a blast. I, and uh, I do have it, a whole bunch of notes now of stuff to listen to. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, you've fit. given me you've given me enormous information. I want to go listen to a lot of that mento. I mean, why don't we do this? I mean, what we could do another one about music, maybe, uh, maybe from what we've done. If you're interested in that, just well, be, let's yeah, let's think about it. Let me let about, me right? uh, let me listen to you, some of your stuff. I don't want to repeat myself on, uh, on another uh, two hour excursion, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'll listen to some of your stuff and we'll we'll talk again for sure. And there's also yeah. that. Uh, that threatened uh, Tintin uh, yeah, yeah. symposium for sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's it's obviously up to you. I, I just sort of feel like like I've got I've got a few th- like I've got like probably ten things in my mind that I feel like I could start mentioning now. But if I do, we'll just be on for another two. That's right. That's right. So I mean, um, maybe what, what what I would do is I would I'm going to make a bunch of notes once I finish with you. And if you're interested, and we could do it. If not, what, yeah, do the we'll see what happens. Problem. Yeah, yeah, you know. Either way, it's been an, an, an enormous pleasure to actually uh, interact with you, even though through Zoom. 
uh, yeah. for the first time. We've been friends. Nonetheless, face to face. Yeah. yeah. And if ever, if ever you're in Montreal, I'd love to uh, sit down and uh, have a drink with you. Definitely. Definitely. It'll happen. I'm not sure exactly when. But, you're going to come uh, see your brother. Your brother happen. lives here, right? Yeah. I got two brothers who live there. And Who's I, the other I've one? Been there. Uh, the Johnny. Other Johnny. Johnny. Larry, Larry, I know through some friends, but. Uh, Johnny is actually your age. He's from 72 oh. as well. Really? Oh, okay. I, I should try hitting him up, uh, friending him on Facebook. I didn't know. He he's a uh, family of like twenty brothers or something. So yeah. How, how many brothers do you have? Facebook. What's that? How many How many brothers do you have? I have I have. Uh, there's nine kids in my family. I have four nine brothers kids. and four sisters. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Every time I saw a family photo of you guys once, and yeah. this whole re- like it was like a row of people, and it said seven out of nine or something like yeah. Like managed to get set or something, and I was like, yeah. Funny. yeah, it's like I've got one brother, you know. Oh man, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's gotta be tough, but uh, okay, all right. Well, listen, thanks again, it's been an enormous pleasure. And whatever we do in the future is fine, even if we do nothing, I'm totally cool with it. And yeah. just thank this you. Is, this has been a blast, it's really good. And I'll, okay. I'll finish up listening to Toys in the Attic and I'll <laughs> and I'll embark on some pitbull. All right, I'm gonna hit them. Okay. All right, man, see ya, see ya. Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. 